Welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host. I'm here with my wife. Uh, we have another great testimony today. Uh, today we are joined by a good friend of mine, Jonathan Cardenas. He is one of our uh, newest disciples that just came into the church um, there in December. He is somebody that uh, just spent eight years in prison, just got out in October. Um, he has a very powerful and strong testimony yes. on where God has brought him out of um, and what God is doing in his life now. He's got a crazy life um, and just lots of stuff that I think we're going to gonna relate and uh, touch on with a lot of people out there. So uh, we're excited to have you on, man. Thanks for joining us. Yes, thank you, yeah, Jonathan. Thank you. So we're going to try to keep this, uh, we're going to go into his life and go through everything. He's got a lot to talk about, so. We'll see how long this goes, but uh, I know when me and Jonathan start talking, we can get going for for a while. So hopefully, we won't go off tangent. We're gonna go off tangent on some but stuff. I did, I did hear there's some ice cream, so <laughs> he's gonna keep. It's gonna be a half hour. <laughs> yeah, we might cut short. Just kidding, everybody. <laughs> so all right, so let's uh, let's just get into it. Uh, just go all the way back to your childhood. Talk about your family life, your upbringing. Um, that was like, yeah. Um, so I. Knowing that the podcast was coming, I've been trying to think back to when um, I really lost that innocence, you know, as a child. It's, it was early on, I know that. My mom, being that I was uh, her first child, she was a teenager, I was the trial run in mm. the parenting phase, you know. So a lot of things that she used as parenting, it was really more like a friendship relationship, you know, even as a young child. Um the earliest memory I have of my real father, um, my mom is sneaking out the house because she's a teenager, and we're going through a window, and I just remember some guy reaching out for me. I can't even remember his face. So apparently that was my dad. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, so you don't, you never met him after that, or um, yeah, there's a, a handful of times, like literally maybe like four or five times that I've come in contact with him mm-hmm. in my whole lifetime, and it's always been real uh, quick, nothing elaborate, no emotional words to exchange. Mm-hmm. I remember one time I'm walking home from school. I was in high school at this time, and my tia owned a car lot, and on the side of the uh, it was off the highway, so I'm walking down the highway and I recognize him. And I was like, say, man, you got some money. It's kind of hot out here. And he gave me, like, $5. I was like, all right, bro, I'll see you later. And that was it. So that's the kind of uh, interaction I've had with my real father. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. So he, he, but he knew who you were. It wasn't like. Yeah, he was, uh, he has children everywhere. Uh. As far as I know, in Hawaii, California, different states. So he just, hey, uh, there is one wife that he had that he actually keeps in touch with his children which are my, my stepbrothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. Um, they've been a great blessing to me throughout my years. But we really never had no uh, relationship as far as siblings. Mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, so thinking back, that's just, uh, the earliest memory I have of my father, you know, being a father figure. He was reaching for me to a window in the middle of the night. Are you his first child too? No, okay. no nowhere near it. You know? Oh, wow. So he had several children before yeah, you came along. Yeah, my mom was uh, like the... So he was married, and my mom was a teenager, so she was kind of just like the the mistress, the uh, side piece. Uh-huh. Okay, okay. So they didn't have a relationship together? No, it was nothing like that. So he, was he a lot older than her? Oh, yeah, he's a lot older. He's oh, like an wow. old man right now. Oh, wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
So, yeah, that and, uh, but as far back as I can remember, it's always kind of been, um, you know, uh, I grew up seeing my mom party and everything. Um, so I think that's where it started. Seeing, uh, it was normal to see her drinking and smoke. No, not necessarily smoking, because they did heavy drugs, so you don't really see, you know, people who smoke crack or heroin, they they tend to hide, you know. Mm. So it's not something that I saw early on. I didn't know what there was going on. But as far back as I can remember, man, I could have, I knew they were on something. Something was going on. Mm-hmm. Mama just wasn't the same. Yeah. You knew when the weekends come around, it was different. Yeah. So at that young age, I didn't know it was drugs. I just knew it was something different with her. Yeah. Was, yeah. Uh, was she a single mom your whole life? Or? No. Uh, so in the beginning, I do remember her being single and uh, being place to place. Uh, I want to say, it may sound crazy, I want to probably be like eight years old, seven years old. Um, I remember being on the bus with her, going to the wake office. And then uh, my stepfather came into her life, and they stayed together for 17 years. So he became like a sort of like a father figure to me, but uh, not much to teach or learn from him, you know. So he was just there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so you didn't really have a, a strong male influence in your life? Yeah, there was no male influence, you know. Nothing I could grasp, grasp onto. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you think that played a big part in, in the path that your life took? Um, well, statistics say yes, you know. So um, maybe I, I could agree with that. I was never that child that was like, uh, where's my dad? Or, mm-hmm. you know, I want to meet my dad. You I just didn't have accepted no, it. You just yeah, I didn't have no it. concern about, you know, none of that. Yeah. Um, there was a lot of, lot of mother figures in my life. I had a lot of moms. Really? Yeah. I had a lot of ladies that, uh, because I was friends with their children, they would take me in, buy me clothes, feed me, would go on audience with them. And um, I had a lot of that, you know. So was your mom in the picture a lot, or was she out doing her own thing, and you kind of just grew up no, on your own? Uh, that's one thing I could give her uh, a plotter for. She was uh, always at home. But spiritually, mentally, she was bitter, you know. Uh, so as I get a little bit older into the middle school years, they, the drugs got heavy. And um, so my little brother, my, my brother and sister that y'all met, um, they say they don't remember most of it. My sister says she doesn't remember most of our life like that. Mm. I'm not sure if it's through trauma or just she didn't see as much as I did. But yeah, as, as uh, I started getting into the preteen ages, they really got heavy on drugs. And So, okay, before we jump into that, uh, your childhood, you're here on your list, you have poverty. Yeah. So what? before we get into your teenage years and the uh, parents on drugs and stuff, what role did that play? On you as a youngster? Oh, uh, well, that pushed me to just roaming around. Um, so I did have an innocent stage of in my life where I would walk around with a, a lawnmower. As cliche as it may sound, I've actually sold lemonade and uh, donuts before. Right. Mm-hmm. So I From, started. So so you've been a hustler since you were a kid. Yeah, I stole my mom's oh, Lone okay. Star card and uh, <laughs> yeah, I went to go get the supplies I needed. Oh, wow. So that's how it started, because I seen that they weren't doing their part, you know. So you were going to provide. Yeah, for myself, because um, I've always had a, a taste for shoes and nice clothes and haircuts and everything. That's actually how I got into the haircut thing. And um, so, yeah, it's like I spoke about um, my testimony on the testimony board. It was like 
the light and water, it was normal for it to be off, you know. Mm-hmm. And this was what I thought was happening across our neighborhood. Like, it was, you, you know. thought that that was. Yeah. Normal. So, uh, I was never ashamed of food stamps. Like, kids were embarrassed of food stamps. Mm-hmm. I was never embarrassed of none of that. So, when I would talk about it openly, um, sometimes I would get, like, stares and I'll blow it off. Like, yeah, man, yeah. I know y'all are living like that, too. Yeah. You know, one time I took the food stamp cards to school and I was buying everybody snacks. <laughs> so they're making fun of me like, ah, your mom's on food stamps. I'm like, we go to the same school. Your mom's on food stamps, too. Yeah. You know, that's how I thought. But, yeah, um, it just went on like that. We could go months without no light because we used to, uh, my dad showed me how to rig the water with a straight pipe when they would take the water meter off. <gasps> so in the mornings when he would go to work. I would have to go outside, take the pipe off, and close it back up to make it look like we didn't tamper with it. Mm. So we were, tr- we were trained and taught that from 8 to 5 is when the city workers in here come checking meters, you know. So we had to be quiet. You know, we couldn't. Re- this is during the summertime. This is how our summers were. So we couldn't really uh, be too loud during the day because the meter man was going to come by. And there is times where I remember the meter man outside the window and we're thinking it's like a game be quiet you know he's outside so it it was like that you know it was still light still water so was it because your parents weren't uh, weren't working no it was is because it because they were blowing their money like they so it was i believe like my dad he's a he's a working uh drug addict you know mm. so i believe in his mind their mind together they're like we could blow this money, we'll make up for it. Mm-hmm. You know, we go still. He used to steal off job sites. I used to go with him with still insulation from the job sites. Yeah. So he used to just take you with, with Yeah, so kid. I used to help him load up the insulation. And we go load like hit three or four houses in the cul de sac, take all the insulation. Oh. Did you ever think this was suspicious and wrong what you were doing? Or it was just like, oh no, this is just what we do, because you're still so young. Yeah, this is like you know, in me, in my eyes, I felt pride like I'm helping them out. We're doing this together, you know, so mm. I'm contributing and helping out. And so then I caught on to he was working these job sites and I already knew where all the insulation was. So, ah. you know, it was all just one big scheme the whole time. Yeah. But yeah, so they would blow the money for a month, two months, and then struggle to scratch everything back up to get the light back on. Mm. Or uh, they'll switch back from names, you know, they do under his name for a little bit and then open it up on my mom's name and go back and forth like that until they, you know, couldn't do it no more. Yes, yeah, yeah. So when you started noticing your parents uh, partying and being on drugs and stuff like that as a young kid, um, I mean, you were already uh, going with them to to steal and rob and stuff. Were you experimenting with drugs too at a young age then? Nah, so that's what always kept me away from drugs. Uh, Weed, you know, I want to say that weed's not bad, but gateway drug as much as people don't want to admit it but yeah drugs was always uh because i used to see what it did to them i thought it was you know so you want to stay away from it? yeah and um so with my mom so i don't know if you've ever experienced people with small crack when they smoke crack uh they can't talk they're they're i don't know what happens to them but they get to a point where their mouth gets all dry their their jaws lock they're not able to talk they like a real sentence. Mm-hmm. So it sounds dumb, you know? And I got to that point where I would just talk to them. Like, I'd talk down to my mom. Like, look at you. Looks, you look stupid, you know? Like, you can't even talk. 
I'll just take off. That's when I uh, really started just leaving, you know. I'll see them, I'll just leave, you know, take off, come back two, three weeks later, stay from place to place. At what age was this? This is young, uh, sixth grade. Sixth grade? Wow. Yeah. So where would you go? Friends, I'll go with friends. Okay. So I was that friend, like, uh, I've heard parents, uh, while I stay, I know when I'm about to burn up my time there. Mm-hmm. Because I could hear them in the other room, like, we can't afford to keep feeding him. Uh, no, it's time to go, yeah. So mm-hmm. go, go on to, to the, the next, next one. one. Yeah, go to the next friend's house. Did you ever, uh, did you guys ever have uh, Child Protective Services get involved? Uh, twice, once that I remember for sure. And uh, so they already, my mom already had told us early on, like, people come asking about your life at home, don't tell them nothing because they're going to take you away. Uh-huh. And... Uh, so she would say, like, if they take you away, it's going to be worse there than it is here. I'm, so we're thinking, like, damn, it's already bad here. Mm. So if it gets worse than this, we might as well just stay here. So uh, that's how they, they raised us. And I'm sure that's a mass people that tell their children that don't tell them nothing that's going on at home. So, yeah, uh, that's one time that I remember. Only once that CPS okay. has been called. And nothing came of it? They didn't? No, nah, it was a close case because none of the kids said nothing. Oh, wow. Yeah, me and my brother and <laughs> sister, we stay... They taught you early on not to <laughs> yeah, snitch. <laughs> early on, you not to talk to the cops or anybody. So at any time when they were doing their drugs and you left for two, three weeks, did you ever, like, consider your siblings? Like, oh, man, they've, well, yeah. they're younger than you. I would come back for them, and um, I just actually mentioned it to Naomi. I've fed my family plenty of times, brought home chicken and pizza, and uh, at a young age, as a teenager, I come home, and I'm bringing home the food for the weekend, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Just as a treat, because, you know, they're young. Yeah, they're little. Yeah. So uh, I've brought home fireworks and, you know, just anything to make the mood a little better. Yes, yeah, yeah. How many siblings do you have? That I grew up with, too. Two that you grew up with? Yeah, they're from my, my mother, so they're my biological brother and sister. Mm-hmm. So right now you're 28, 29? Just right? turned 29, Just 20, yeah. turned 29. Uh, okay, so you're still a youngster. Um <clears throat> So your childhood, your early teens then. Uh, so your parents, it sounds like you're, you know, you didn't really have a lot of supervision. Yeah. Um, they didn't really. It was uh, zero supervision. So you were kind of just on your own, basically? Yeah. Uh, I used to have these friends that I grew up with. Like I said, it was one of the moms, another extra mom I had. And so we would go cut grass and do whatever we could to get money for the weekend to go to the movies or Skateland. And. So I didn't have to ask my mom to go anywhere. I didn't have to tell her where I was going. So it would be like, I, I will see you later. You know, no hug, no kiss, nothing. Just walk out the door with my backpack. And I walk down to my friend's house, and uh, he's crying. Like, what's up with you, dude? He's like, my mom doesn't want to let me go. I said, man, you're lame, bro. I'm gone. So I'll leave him and go to Skateland. So, but I thought that was lame because he had to ask his mom. And I'm in sixth grade, you know, it was, Skateland was sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, we started going to the movies. And, um, yeah, I thought that was lame and weird that he had to ask his mom, like, bro. Because yeah, that was not what you experienced. You're like, I just tell her where I'm going. Hey, I don't even I have to tell anything. her where I'm going. I just, just leave. leave. No. So, did you ever feel, as a young kid, did you ever feel unloved? No. Or did you just think it was just normal? Yeah, was- no, uh, because I do give credit to them. When they weren't high, we would go, like, this is crazy. One time we packed up everything, and we got on a city bus and went to Brackenwich Park. We had to get on, like, three different buses to get there. So stuff like that. Or we'll go to H-E-B, and we'll all walk home with groceries, uh, stealing the, 
the basket and pushing as far as we could. <laughs> so, yeah, they, you know, when they weren't high, they, you know, we were real close. You know, they were, they tended to find ways to do things for the kids, you know. Did you ever, uh, did it ever snap to you that it wasn't normal? Like, did you ever get to a point where you're like, dude, this is messed up? Not until I started going to prison and I started talking to other individuals. And I'll get into that when we get to that point. But, yeah, up until when I went to prison, I realized, like, dang, nobody, not everybody's living like this. It's a small percentage of people. And uh, even to this day, I talk about how we grew up with no AC for years. I just saw a video yesterday on uh, Instagram, and it was showing a, a box fan in the window. Like, do people still do that? You know, because that was our lives. You know, we didn't have AC or AC window units. So it was never like, oh, my life sucks, boo-hoo. Instead, it was like, dude, why are you the next person complaining, you know? Yeah. I used to see kids complaining at school. I would, worry, I would have two pants for the whole year, you know, two pairs of pants for the whole year. Wow. So I would see other kids, like, going through all these cool, uh, at the time it was like babes and uh, cool jeans, and, you know, belts that lit up and said their name. <laughs> so... <laughs> I had two pants and maybe four uniform shirts. So it was never like a pity thing with me. I, I never acquired that mindset. So I, I got a question for you because we've known some other people through here in their testimonies that they grew up in poverty, but their poverty was like dirty. Like they grew up bugs in the house, always with lice and ticks. Was that like with you since the water uh, and lights were always off? No, we weren't big on pets. Uh, they never survived. They made it with us. Like we couldn't afford to feed them and. So, no, as far as dirty like that, no. Uh, so, if you know anything about cocaine or crack, they tend to start cleaning everything. Oh, okay. So, my mom will get all cracked out and clean up the whole house. Yeah, stay busy. Playing music, country music uh-huh. all night. Wake okay. up and the house smells amazingly clean. Okay. So, okay, so uh, so then in your teen years, is that when you uh, started uh, getting involved with the streets and uh, probably selling drugs? Or what uh, was your no, first I thing? started off stealing. Stealing? Yeah, so this uh, it started off with lowrider bikes. In my neighborhood where I was at at that time, uh, lowrider bikes were in style. So me and a buddy of mine, a close friend that I grew up with, uh, we will go out stealing lowrider bikes and sell the frames or whatever. Then we started stealing radios because radios started getting real popular. You know, it started like that. And then it got into, uh, he started selling weed before I did. And he started getting a lot of weed, we'll sell it. Um, that's how I got into that. My mom, she would find my stuff and throw it away, and I would have to explain to the guy that I owed money to, like, dude, my mom just threw everything away. So, at what age was this? This was already like seventh grade. Sixth and seventh grade was the focal point of when everything unfolded. Okay, I remember in fifth grade, um, my boy used to talk like, "Bro, we're going to middle school yet next year. We could sell weed to everybody because there's a bunch of potheads and stoners in middle school." So we would already plan all this, and uh, we would walk home. It was always walking everywhere. We walked everywhere. That's why today I see the uh, see the teenagers, and they don't do nothing. I'm like, man, we used to go everywhere walking. Mm-hmm. So uh, we would walk home from school and plan this already. We're going to skip school. We're going to do this, and we'll make this much money to get that. And when we got to sixth grade, that's what started happening. We would start skipping school. I remember the bus driver's name. His name was Mario. I don't know where he's at now. It's been years. But... Uh, so he would let, we would get to school, and he would let us hide under the seats, and he would drive off, and then we'll get off the bus, and he'll just go about his day. He used to help us skip school. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Shout out Mario. 
I don't know if we want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> right? This was years ago. He uh, might be in jail already for doing that. Did you, uh, did you drop out of high school? Uh, I got forced out. Um, so I picked up my first juvenile case in seventh grade. It was a assault. Oh, uh, it was a assault bodily injury, and uh, this so guy, this guy, got into it with some guy, and um, he apparently had uh, contacts and messed them up pretty bad. His contacts, his eyes were all messed up, and I got that with the brass knuckles. They had me for a weapon, <laughs> and uh, that was my first time going to juvenile. So after that, it was kind of like a, just a, a rolling stone. Just kept getting worse. So uh, let's talk about that real quick. So your first time going to juvie, how long was it? So juvenile, as far as back then, I don't know how it operates now. It was a two-week period. It was oh, mandatory okay. two weeks. You sit there, and then you go for a review before the judge to see if they release it to your parents. So it was just two weeks that oh, okay. first time. So what did you think of that experience? I as thought it was cool. I thought I had something to brag about when I came home. Gave you some clout? You're like, oh. Yeah, gave me some clout because I got arrested <laughs> in front of all the kids. And, you know, I went to a ghetto school, so it was like. Yeah, you see Jonathan went to jail. He's in handcuffs. So they kind of looked at you a little different when you came back? Yeah, I came back with a little strap on my shoulder. Some juice? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I got what the did, juice. What you did your mom and stepdad say? Um, It was just like, it was nothing, no repercussions, no uh, punishment, nothing. It was just like, okay. don't do it again. Uh. You know, they, you know, cuss. You know, there was a lot of cussing and talking bad, like, in Spanish. Oh, stupid, don't be doing that no more, you know. Okay, so then after that moment, you're still acting like a, a dumb kid. So yeah, what's the next uh, next incident then? I got into graffiti, and okay. I know it's not like a, like oh that's a bad crime, but yeah, I got into the graffiti scene. Uh, we used to go steal a bunch of spray paint and everything. This is like seventh grade before I got to eighth grade. I'm already on probation, and uh, yeah, the graffiti scene was just like we'd stay up all night getting high, smoking weeds, just vandalizing everywhere, spray painting. And eventually that landed me in jail too, in juvenile. I got arrested for the spray paint. Uh, I got caught on the side side of the highway with like a five-gallon bucket of paint, full of paint. (laughs) So I went to juvenile for that. It was the same thing. My mom picked me up. Don't be doing that stupid. You know better. And um, it just kept going from there. Then I got into eighth grade, and that's when it's like the girls started coming around and, you know, there's more smoking weed now. It's a lot of the weed now. And um, more going out, more staying out. Now I'm staying out the whole summer, not coming back until it's time to go to school. Mm. And, um, yeah, it was just, like, uh, a lot of, uh, how would you say it? Like, there's nobody there to watch me or anything. No guidance, no uh, pushback. What you're doing is, like, hey, you're headed down the wrong path. Yeah, and it sounds like where you grew up, it sounds like there was a lot of other kids in the same situation. No, we used to be in groups, and uh, I don't see that where we're at, or even around here. I don't see that. Mm-hmm. It Maybe it's still happening in those places, but, yeah, we used to be in groups of, like, 10, 15 kids, boys and girls, and, you know, there's sex going on, and we're getting high. And this is all eighth grade, and then eighth grade summer is, like, when it took a turn. Uh, that's when I really started messing with the guns and, you know, walking around with a gun and, Started selling crack. Um, my boy, we, he showed me how to, we start, he, he was always a little bit ahead of me, like as far as in the streets. So I learned from him a lot of the things. And he had got nine ounces of cocaine. That's a lot to me at that time. And uh, we just make a whole bunch of little bitty rocks and we just, you know, we'll go 
So there's a place, uh, there's a city bus station, and we'll just go out there and and we'll just stay out there, just selling crack. Like the movies, I used to feel cool because it felt like the you know we're selling crack yeah. on the corner, like the movies. Yeah. And then, um, so I found out that he was selling crack to my mom and dad. Oh, right. And I was like, bro, you you ain't gonna do that no more. And uh, he was like, so he told me, he said, bro, they're gonna spend that money either way. So I'd rather beat the worst. I was like, you got a point. So I told him, I'm going to start selling it to them. But it's going to go through you. So they started buying crack off of him, but it was mine. And the money's coming to me. And, um, you know, you know, same thing, spending it with the kids, my brother and sisters. But it wasn't a lot of money, you know. It wasn't like thousands of dollars. Because mm-hmm. uh, it's just coming from them, you know. They didn't have a lot of money. So I don't think they even know that to this day. That they're buying crack off me. Do you? How does that make you feel now, looking back? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it happened already. Like, I see her restoration. She was there yesterday at the outreach event. I was like, uh, you know, my mom used to be a cracker. She got restored, and she's standing there looking at me. <laughs> so it was like, it happened already, you know. But yeah, as far as that, she did. She uh, this is probably gonna be the first time she hears about it right now, and. Um, yeah, then I got into... Uh, so, so when you're doing that, though, like, you didn't have any remorse? You didn't feel bad at all? You're mm-hmm. like, no, you're like, oh, they're going to do it. I'm going to make money off it. Oh, that's what he had convinced me. At first, I was kind of like, bro, you're sending cracks to my parents, bro. What the heck? What's wrong with you? And he's like, they're going to do it regardless. You can't stop it. They're smoking crack regardless. They're going to buy it from somebody. Well, there was a time in my mom's life where she bought, they bought crack off this uh, dealer that they had been messing with for years and had owed him a lot of money, and he gave them rat poisoning. So she almost had a heart attack. So that was another thing he said. He said, at least you know that what you're giving them is not going to get them killed. You know, or, you know rat poison is not going to kill them. So, yeah, then I got into the whole uh, robbing. I started doing armed robberies. Are you serious? That's when it got rough. Rough for you or for other people? <laughs> for Yeah, for everybody because I had people, you know, hearing like, oh, it was, uh, it was Jonathan who got you. You know, so now I'm worried about people. So you, so you started uh, earning a reputation? Yeah, just as a scumbag. <laughs> you know, yeah, these are kind of like weary, you know, it's like, man. So you use a gun or a knife? No, I use guns. Yeah. Mm. And this is uh, just like other local thug people or just yeah. normal people too? No, like? I never, oh, yeah, I can't say I never uh, robbed a, a working person, but it was always a, uh, it was always a, a drug dealer or somebody else, you know, to kind of take their drugs and start selling it. And I've been robbed myself, so it's kind of a circle of life that <laughs> just keeps going. The first okay. time I robbed somebody was with a BB gun, at CO2. Uh, what is it called, CO2? The CO2, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, airsoft gun. And I was thinking, like, man, I hope this person doesn't have a real gun. Yeah, so. And so what, was, what was, why? Just so you can get more drugs to sell? Yeah, just, um, you know, I'm down and out, so I just take thirds. You're just going to take it? Yeah. yeah. Wow. So uh, so during this this time, I mean, did you ever get into any rough situations where you had to duke it out or you shooting at each other trying to get no, out? Oh, I had messed with, uh, one time I had messed with this cartel guy, and it turned out bad. Oh, uh, Or well, two times I messed with uh, this cartel guy, and then later on I got into it with somebody else we'll get into a little while. But this cartel guy... Um, found out where I lived at, and he went terrorizing at my house. He took my dad for a ride, and yeah, so my dad called me. 
And he's like, uh, I just talked to, uh, forget his name. It was some, you know, Mexican cartel name. And uh, he was like, he just wants his money back. That's it. I sold him some, uh, I didn't know the guns were messed up. I had sold him some guns and one of them was jammed. And so he was pretty messed up about it. And it wasn't a lot of money, but yeah. So he was like terrorizing, looking for me. So at uh, that point, did that kind of open your eyes to the severity of the world, the life nah, that you live in, or no? You just like nah, yeah, I just kind of blew it off. Did you pay him? Uh, no, I actually ran into him one day at a water burger, and he's like, "Look, bro, don't even worry about it. You're a kid. You were a kid." Oh, okay. I was like, <laughs> "Cool, bro." <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. So at this age. I'm assuming, you know, with all this stuff going on, you kind of mentioned a little bit, but I'm assuming you lost your virginity pretty young. Yeah. Um, it was sixth grade behind the school in the woods. It was kind of like... Sixth grade? Hey, yeah. It was like maybe pushing <laughs> seventh grade. She's all laughing. Yeah. It was behind the woods. And um, I didn't know what I was doing. I don't know if it felt good or it didn't, you know. <laughs> so it just happened, you know. It was just that thing that happened. Sixth grade, dude. That's young. Yeah. And... um. Yeah, so it was, you know, a lot of other things happened other than sex, and I didn't know if I was enjoying it. Like I said, I didn't know what was happening. I just knew this was what was going on. And um, it was something to brag about, really, just that's it. So did that uh, lead you uh, in your early years uh, down promiscuity? Or was that not as, you you were more focused on the the robin, the salon, the... No, I was, so I could honestly say in middle school years, I was like a lover boy. I really wanted a girlfriend. (laughs) So (laughs) I wasn't into that. At that point, I really wasn't into having a whole lot of girlfriends. But yeah, as I got older and out of high school, it became like, uh, you know, it was just an object. Women were just an object. Yeah, that's how, uh, so I would stay from place to place and I would stay with girls and, you know, hide out at girls' houses and. So okay, so in your in your teen years, then uh, what is your next experience with uh, with juvie? Is there another one, or is that it? No. Uh, so yeah, I had picked up, got picked up. Now I get into high school, ninth grade, and I'm selling a lot of weed, and I got picked up on some weed. Uh, got caught at selling weed at school because somebody snitched on me. Had a whole backpack full of weed, all individually bagged. Oh. But because I'm a minor, they just slap, you know, slap uh, uh, your wrist. Yeah, and. Um, I went to an alternative school, and then you just start networking. You start meeting other people all over. I went to a juvenile school. It was a, called Juvenile Justice Academy, and it's kids from all over the San Antonio, from every district. So now you just start meeting other kids from other places that are doing the same things you're doing. It's just it's like growing your network. Yeah. So <laughs> now you just hang, now I'm hanging out on the west side and the east side, and now you just start hanging out everywhere else, yeah. and you're leaving your home place. So yeah, and then um, of course I went back. I made it back to high school. And um, so the high school I go to is a lot of gang activity. Is a, uh, you know, it's right there by the mother church down the street, and it's a real ghetto area church. Yeah. Oh, the yeah, yeah not mm-hmm. the mother church. Forgive me about that. The Pastor Ruby's church. Pastor Ruby's church. Yeah. Down the street from that, and um, it's a lot of gangs. It's split. So Marbach split from one half to another, and everybody just kind of goes at it. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, some girl I grew up with early on uh, got killed and. This is freshman year. It's a big, tragic story. Like, we all went to middle school and elementary school together. She gets to high school and get killed by these dudes down the street. 
So then it becomes like a, it's just a back and forth thing, fighting and. So were you part of a gang or are you just kind of? It was just thing? like a neighborhood thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, just because I'm from this neighborhood. Um, but it wasn't like an official set that you guys had or yeah, no, it was an official set. We had this little gang that me and my friend started up and it never, uh, grew into nothing crazy, you know, but yeah, as far as, well, I guess, yeah, it's considered a gang, right? Yeah. I don't know what a major gang is. So other than like the mafias and all, I never got into that. It's not like, you know, like the bloods, the crips or the, like the wild yeah. ones or anything like that. Well, see, San Antonio, uh. There's so many different gangs that people just wear the color red, but they're not bloods. So that's how it was in our neighborhood. We all wore red. And one day, I don't know how it happened, we all show up to school wearing the same color. Everybody is like 20-something people wearing red from our neighborhood, and um, it becomes a huge thing. Sheriffs show up. and So in high school, the sheriffs, they can't touch you. And um, they're just there to monitor the situation and make sure nobody gets killed or hurt bad. So you got these people just fighting all in front of the cops on the cop cars and, you we're know, the cops are just watching because they were all minors, you know, mm-hmm. so they can't just really do nothing. There's so many of us. And this was when the YouTube area was going on. So uh, we would post our fights on YouTube. Um, <laughs> I would have knockouts Inc- on. Incriminate says, yourself. Well, it happened. I had a, my parole, well, my parole officer, my probation officer show up one day and uh, she was like, you know, you wouldn't believe what I found on the Internet. I was like, it was, it was one of my fights, and you know, was, you still have those links. Uh, they might be on there somewhere. <laughs> Send yeah. them to me. <laughs> yeah, we might be able to find them. But um, so yeah, this is ninth grade, tenth grade. Um, start skipping school a lot more. Um, now I'm messing with the girls, and it's like uh, school's not really that important. I'm trying to make some money now, and um, again, I start selling drugs and. Now we get into the selling heroin. Heroin brings some crazy characters around. So, um, yeah, the same situation. We go to the same area, sell heroin. And I uh, remember being in this house, and it's a, it's an apartment complex, but the apartment complex has a bunch of uh, washeteria, like almost every other building. And we're there, and the door gets kicked in, and um, I'm a minor, and they have guns and everything going on and it's the cops and they're asking about a homicide and we're just like dude we're just here chilling and um everybody has drugs on them but they're not worried about nothing so that was pretty crazy to be caught in that situation just innocent crossfire and you know with the drugs i had on me could have sent me to prison so you know that was grace right there so many times in my life uh god has shown me grace and not sent me to prison when i should have went to prison okay so then what happens at uh you got forced out of school. Yeah, so uh, I can I continue on. My grades start falling. Um, my credits, I can't. I don't remember recall the amount of credits you need to graduate. But I was like in single digits. You know, I was nowhere near graduating. So they try to work with me, and uh, I get kicked out of the school, and I go to a different school. But this school is like. Real ritzy and rich, and everybody's dressed nice. They uh, got sophomores and juniors and BMWs and big trucks. And that's when I felt the poverty. That's when I felt like a little, like, man, I don't belong here. Yeah. So it just became like uh, my grades slipped even more, and it was just like uh, they started telling my mom, like, you got to withdraw him or you're going to be put in court. So she just withdrew me, and that was it. Okay. Uh, yeah, I stopped going to school. Um, I don't, I don't recall. I know it was like 
2012, 13. I had a picture of ID. What year did that ID say? Yeah, it was it was early. Okay. Yeah, and from there, it just uh, yeah, it got bad after that. I didn't have. Now I'm not staying at home at all. I'm staying uh, different places, and uh, um, I got involved with. It was like a crime ring, you know. These dudes are Texas syndicates. I'm messing with these people, and uh, there's a lot of stuffs going on. And the, uh, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of robberies and drugs and you know a lot of stuff going on i'm messing with this one main big dude well he starts um you know because i'm young he starts taking advantage of me and not paying me mm. and so the job might be worth that we did and i'm saying job is not a real job you know it's just, crime so, yeah this what they call a lick you know this thing that we're doing is uh, worth maybe a couple thousand he's giving me a couple hundred mm. saying i'll pay you the rest later so uh, it just kept going on like that for a couple of weeks. And finally, I was like, dude, you owe me a few thousand dollars already. Like, I'm thinking to myself, like, well, I know who this dude is. I see what he does, and I see the, you know, the risk it is messing with him. So uh, one day we're out at night, and he gets picked up by the cops. And um, I get this bright idea, like, I know where he lives. I'm just going to go get my money back from him personally. And... uh I went to his house and you know went in there and took everything that I could. There was a lot of valuable stuff. And um yeah, he gets out the same day a couple hours later. It's like, dang, I thought he was going to stay in there for, you know, mm. let it blow over, he won't figure it out. Well, he starts going and kicking doors down and shooting people's dogs and holding oh. people hostage <laughs> and um holding guns to people's moms, you know, at their house, holding their moms up for hostage that day until so finally uh, a close friend of mine gives me up uh, because all this uh, wreckage this guy was causing. He's kicking doors in. He killed a close friend of mine, Pitbull, just right there in front of their kids and everything. So finally he was like, man, it was Jonathan did it. And, uh, yeah, he gets a hold of me. And um, it was just a bad scenario. That's how I winded up getting shot. So what happened? Um, well, it's just like I got caught slipping, you know. <laughs> I took a bullet and where'd you get shot? In my left leg above my knee. It was uh pretty close to artery. I didn't realize it at the time, um, until I got to the hospital there, like uh yeah, just within not even inches you would have lost your life. Yeah, so was it from far? Um, was not too far because it was a uh, I don't know how far uh, a thirty eight special would go, the bullet. Well, those are pretty big bullets, so I'm I'm sure they lose their, you know, they they their can't shoot that far. So yeah, it was pretty close. And um, after that, just uh, you know, I wouldn't go back to my mom's house because I don't want to take no drama there. Well, so so with the shooting though, did that change your mindset at all? No, I just, just no, it was, was part a, of. Was that another? Uh, Battle scar, where you're like, oh, look at me, I got shot. No, oh, that one was embarrassing. That was actually embarrassing for me because okay. I couldn't walk. Okay. And I was staying with this girl, and um, I was dependent on her because I couldn't make no money. I couldn't move around. It was real humiliating. I, uh, so I've always been ahead of the a uh, lot of people that I'm around as far as my maturity and, and the things I've been through. Mm-hmm. So although I'm messing, I'm 
you know, 16, messing with a 16-year-old, it's like I'm 21 mentally, and so I'm staying in her dad's room, and uh, her room, and her dad's there, and I just feel like, and then got to hide and take out the trash, and, you know, play the role. So it was humiliating. Um, I couldn't walk for about almost a month and a half, two months, without a, a, crane, a cane or a crutch. And uh, the bully hole stinks. So I remember one time um, I'm laying down in bed with her, and I'm telling her, like, dude, you stink. You need to go take a shower. And she's like, no, you stink. It's your bully hole. You got to go take a shower. The flesh, it starts to smell like rotting meat. And uh, it was a humiliating experience. I didn't have nothing. I couldn't do nothing. Um, the dude who snitched on me gave me a, a good amount of money to get me through and a lot of weed just so I could just kind of stay at home all day. And it was humiliating. And so what happened with the guy? He shot you and did he get it? Uh, he left you alone after that? or No. Um, so as he's in the feds. You know, somebody that I'm not too concerned about because, you know, Christ got me now. It's been years. It's been a long time. So eventually, he, you know, continue on with the same thing, end up dead or stay in prison or maybe find Christ, you know, and then we'll talk about it later. <laughs> so, yeah. Then I got my own apartment. I started uh, doing real good for myself money-wise. And I had an apartment that I had to get co-signed. And um, that was even worse. It became like a trap house. At the time, I didn't know the term trap house. You know, that's a new term yeah. that came about just over the last few years. It's just new as just, you know, this is our house. <laughs> this is where we're selling drugs out of. So I got my apartment, and uh, we started messing with strippers and prostitutes because of the heroin. It brings in a lot of crazy characters. And um, Were you using to or just selling? No, I never used heroin. Um, never smoked crack. I've never shot up with needles. Um, so you really did just stay away just from what you saw? With the yeah, parents. because uh, you see that, and it kind of has an impact. You didn't experiment, though? You weren't, like, curious? No, nah, never. I could see uh, because of what my mom went through, you know, being all cracked out. Mm -hmm. It never caught my attention. So at this point in your life when you're on your own and stuff, are your parents still heavily in drugs, or were they starting to make their recovery? So actually my mom started going to church. Um, I can't remember when. Uh, Some, sometime in, in this time, though, right? Yeah, I remember um, I came. No, this is way before I got my apartment. I remember I came home one time, and uh, it was a weekend. I always remember it because uh, she could talk. You know, she wasn't high. Mm -hmm. So I was like, "What the heck?" But I didn't. I didn't say nothing. I just blew it off. But it stayed in the back of my mind. Like, what the heck's going on? Maybe they don't have money for dope. And um, so I left, and then I came back, and it was the same thing. She wasn't high. So then she started telling me she, she started going to church. And I remember laughing at her like, yeah, we'll see how long that lasts. Mm. And, um, yeah, she actually got uh, saved and, you know, left the drugs alone. My dad continued on for years to this day. He's uh, still in his mess. But, yeah, she had got saved and left everything alone. And then turned around and started praying for me and my everything, you know. So I would go to church, you know. But it was never nothing serious. You didn't like, take anything from it? Yeah, I would just go because she's there. And I've had, uh, that's how I met my real brothers and sisters was through the church that she went through. It was a crazy scenario. She started going to this church, and uh, the, the wife that my real dad 
was married to while he was cheating on her with my mom was at that same church. Did your mom know this? Not until she got there. Oh, wow. So one day, uh, now I'm going a little bit backwards. One day I go to church and uh, my mom tells me, like, you see those people, those are your brothers and sisters. So I'm like, all right, cool. I don't, I, like I said, I never was the, uh, like, oh, uh, I want to meet my family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Never dawned on me. Until one day my uh, older stepsister, she, uh, I'm young, I'm a kid. She's like, hey, can I take you out to eat? I'm like, sure, yeah. <laughs> Turned down no free food. And she's like, you know I'm your brother, uh, you know I'm your sister, and these are your brothers. And I was like, yeah, my mom told me. So it was nothing like, cool, you know, we're going to start being best friends. But they would try. They would buy me shoes and clothes and keep me around. They went to church, so they would try to take me to the country with them. And But it never stuck, you know. So, yeah, she met my, uh, met that lady from that church that she was going to. And so all those times um, that you went to church with your mom or talking with your mom at this point, like, no seeds were planted? You just kind of, like, went over your head or... You know what? Actually, I skipped it. Um, yeah, I did. I started reading my Bible, and um, I can't believe I forgot this. I started reading my Bible and um, started praying. And I remember they, uh, you know, I'm telling kids about Jesus and everything. And my, this was, I'm now going back further because I forgot. This was before my mom started going to church. They would take, somebody else would take me to that same church. It's weird. This church had a tie to everything, even my wife's life. This church was tied into a lot of stuff that happened. So um, I don't mean to bounce around. We're going to get no, back. Fine. But yeah, actually, before my mom got saved, I, um, I was young, and somebody was taking me to church, one of our neighbors, to that same church. And um, I started reading my Bible at home, and my mom was the one, like, laughing at me. So that, that's what it was when she, I started seeing her go to church. That's why I started making fun of her. Because she was the one, like... She used to make fun of you. Yeah, she would laugh and everything while she was partying. So, um, going back to the crack and my mom and everything, because this plays a big factor in a lot of people's lives. This, uh, she would turn to, like, a demonic uh, person. Like, her face would change, her eyes would change, her voice, everything would change. So, the, uh, speaking on speaking life, this lady, uh, say with this lady, my mom, would... Um, speak a lot of curses on us, like, just talk bad to us and everything. So, yeah, they actually, yeah, that church did play a factor in my, uh, you know, walk with God. That was real early on. What church was this? Uh, it was called Glory Bond Christian Church, and um, it's going to be part of my wife's testimony. This church wanted to fall in apart, man, just real wicked. Was it one of those, was it a, was it like one of the, I don't know about like main churches, but one of the churches in the area you grew up in, like, yeah, is that it's, why it's in every in a lot of different parts of your life. Cause it's no, kind it's of not a big one. church. It's actually a real small church too, and um, I don't understand. It's all God why everything was tied in, because that's how I met uh, my brothers and sisters. Then my mom invited my wife to church, so she started coming to that church, and you know, it's just everything tied in through that one that church right there. Yeah, we'll talk about that a, a little bit more when we talk about your relationship mm-hmm. and stuff. Um, okay, so let's move on to. Uh, okay, you're you're in your apartment and you know the trap house and all this stuff going on, and so yeah, so we're selling a lot of heroin and uh, got uh, people shooting up in my house and you're uh, about sixteen, seventeen. 
Yeah, I just turned 17. I had to get a co-signer for my apartment. Okay. Yeah, and um, so, yeah. Did you have a real job at that time? 17. Mm-mm. No, that's why I had to get the co-signer. And, uh, Did you ever have a real job before prison? Yeah, I've had jobs. Okay. Yeah. And that thing never lasted, ever. It was like, yeah. man, we're making more money doing this. And mm. so uh, I had the co-signer for the apartment, and it was an instant party house, like, just... Because kids are, uh, people that I'm growing w- up with are still in high school. And I'm down the streets in the same area on Marbuck. And I'm living right there. So on lunch break, everybody's coming to my house from the high school. And we're all selling them weed. They're getting high there. And uh, it's like a party house. Then I started messing with the strippers and prostitutes. And they bring around their people. And it just becomes real dark. People are tattooing and shooting up. And um, they're cooking crack. And... A bunch of guns. Did you even know half the people that were in and out of your apartment? A lot of times I wouldn't. One time it was funny because uh, we we met this random stripper from you know just <laughs> no relation to us. So she's staying there at my apartment, and uh, she's like, "Can I bring my friends over?" And I was like, "Yeah, cool. I just bring them over." Well, it turned out to be all my neighborhood friends. So it was like one big party gathering, and. Um, so we're out there uh, selling drugs, and my friends are stealing. And one day, they had been up for days. And at the time, I'm still not. So I'm not doing as much drugs in my life. The most drugs I've done were in prison. And uh, so at this time, my friends are partying, and um, they're shooting up, smoking meth, and mixing it together up for days. Well, I'm over here. Uh, I'm, I remember they had brought home a bunch of guns. So I'm taking them out to sell. And um, everybody stayed with their own gun, like, at the batch that we found. Uh-huh. So uh, I get this phone call from a girl, and she's screaming and crying. And I hear gunshots in the background, and um, they're like, hey, man, these dudes are out here shooting. Like, my boy, uh, he's still in prison for this incident. They were all high trying to buy. Uh, I don't know if they are trying to buy or trying to sell, but they, uh, they shot this dude over, like, $15, $20 in my apartment complex. Right there in broad daylight. And um, it tied back to my apartment. So I had got evicted for it. And, um, yeah, these dudes right there. Uh, I remember pulling up to the apartment complex, and um, I didn't even stop to go inside. I just picked up that dude's girlfriend because she was all frantic and freaking out. And I remember dropping off, like, down the street at a store or something. But, yeah, you could see the white. It was a white old-school Jeep. The dude's right there in the driver's seat, and there's blood dripping down, and um, the truck, the engine's all steaming up, and cops are everywhere. So uh, he manages to call me on cell phone. I'm like, dude, where are you at? I'm trying to pick you up because the helicopter's in there. And, um, yeah, he hangs up, and then I get another phone call, and it's uh, it's the cops. Like, hey, bro, uh, where are you at? I'm like, well, I didn't sound like him, so I played along. I'm like, man, I'm, uh, I'm over here at my mom's house. So he started laughing. He's like, you know we're getting y'all for uh, attempted murder and uh, attempted robbery. And I just hung up because I knew I had nothing to do with it, you know. So I got evicted from my apartment for that. And uh, So, okay, so this life that you're living, did you ever, like, were you, did you think you were happy in that life? Or were you ever at a point where, like, man, this sucks, like, I'm kind of tired of this? Uh, as far as happiness and uh, depression, I, I never 
um, was able to address it until I got to prison. It was just part of the lifestyle, you know. You kind of just stay high. You know, the money comes when it comes, and you enjoy it while it's there. And um, It wasn't, it, okay, yeah, um, it wasn't until I started messing with this one girl when I started feeling the depression because she brought me down, like, to the bottom. And, of course, I can't blame her, but it was just a real toxic relationship. Um, so I started staying and living with her. At this time, I'm, like, the best, doing the best that a teenager could possibly be doing at that age the wrong way and uh, she has a little girl it's not my kid but I just kind of so this is how it happened um, I met her through her brother selling her weed and she kind of latched on to me and um, didn't know she had a kid we were messing around before you know it, she uh, she starts bringing a little bit more clothes around and next thing you know she's staying with me next thing you know the baby's there it just kind of became an overnight family mm. And uh, I can't even provide for my, like, I'm providing for myself, but the stuff that's going on, this baby's, uh, you know, in the middle of everything. The drugs, the crazy shootings. She was in the car one time and there was a shooting. This is a little one-year-old, two-year-old. And uh, I started messing with her and it was just where it was a downward spiral. For some reason, I couldn't get no traction on um, anything I wanted to do. It was like uh, something pulling me back because of this relationship I'm in. So, uh, yeah, we're partying together. She's smoking meth, and I'm making fun of her. Then I wind up smoking meth with her. And, you know, like, the money I get is going to formula. This is not even my kid. And then when I didn't have money, I'm going into the Walgreens and CVS stealing formula or Pampers. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it just became real toxic. And, uh um, I remember trying to leave her alone, and just we always ended up back with each other. And then I started messing with another girl, and she was even worse because she was a gangster chick. Like, you know, she was going to be down to shoot for me, whatever. Like, she was... A crazy. Crazy, yeah. <laughs> so that kind of enabled the other side of me, you know, like, well, let's do it together. So started robbing people together. That's when I got into the whole robbing thing because it was just real easy. And it was always, like I said, other drug dealers, her boyfriends uh, that she messed with. And, um, yeah, I started doing that for a, a period of time. And I remember one time I'm on the meth with her and we're in a, a motel. And I hold her hostage with a gun to her head because I think she's, she's going to do the same thing that we've been doing to these other guys. Uh, like She's going to play you. Yeah, so it got bad. Um, I left her alone. And... Um, it seemed like every girl I ran into before I went to prison was just enabling a darker side of me. Mm-hmm. Just all toxic relationships. Yeah. So, okay, and then so how far off are we from you getting locked up? Um, so I went to a state jail for about three months. For what? Uh, I took a charge for my boy, and it was a death of a vehicle. And possession of firearms, so I went to state jail. I got some back time in the county. I did almost like six months total. Then I came out and um, I got involved in some real dark stuff. Uh, you know, I had detectives come to my house. Uh, I got my mom's house raided right there where she lived at, and um, I was just on the on the bench of just being this psychopath, man. Um, shootings. Uh, you know, shootings back and forth. People have been injured and everything. Stuff that, you know, on a one-on-one person that uh, I could reveal more to. 
it's real deep. And so then I landed uh, into the stealing truck ring. So we're stealing a lot of trucks, sending them down to the border. Mm-hmm. And um, they picked me up on that. And uh, I wish I would have never got bonded out. But I had got bonded out and uh, I got caught up in a, in a pretty serious crime. So at that point, I just went on a, like, started popping a lot of pills and uh, got heavy on the Xanax. And at one point, I actually woke up in the magistrate uh, not knowing how I got there. Like, I've always heard stories but prior to this, people waking up, uh, drug-induced, not knowing what happened in the magistrate, and this actually happened to me. I woke up in the magistrate, and um, at that time, it was just tickets like they just took me off the streets because i was all barred up and um what does barred up mean uh just uh they call it bars the xanax oh okay so you're on these bars okay so i uh i got bonded out and i started just real bad again with the guns and everything and uh that's how i got into this case that i went to prison with so Um, okay so real quick i got a question so you stayed away from drugs because of your experience with your parents and stuff so what made you Start doing pills and stuff. Uh, the Did girls, you not consider it the same? Yeah. Um, I guess I was supplementing the excuse, like just saying, well, I'm not, at least I'm not smoking crack, you know? Okay. <laughs> so, but uh, I can honestly say, man, I was influenced by the the girls in my life because uh, I'll meet one girl, she's smoking meth, and the next one's popping bars. So, and you were, okay, so it's kind of uh, influence from them. And yeah, so it's just kind of yeah. something we did together, we party together. Okay. But you, so with the meth, did you ever get uh, addicted or you just kind of did it with her? No, it was like a party thing. Like yeah. just, um, you know, just. What about the Xanax? Same thing? Yeah, the Xanax didn't last long. That was like a two-week, three-week thing before I went okay. to prison. Yeah, so I came out, bonded out. Um, and who, I, who bonded you out? My friend, a uh, friend of mine, a real close friend of mine. I uh, forgot what that charge was for, actually. It was something minor. I bonded out and got right back into the trucks. We're stealing a whole lot of F-350s, big Dodge trucks, and sending them down to the border, driving them halfway down there. And uh, they'll meet us and give us some good money from. So uh, then I link up with this dude. He's Mexican Mafia. And uh, that's when it was right before I went to prison. They're holding people hostage and uh, pretending to be cops and everything. And well, then... uh, he just gets into this thing where he wants to uh, break into the drug dealers' houses. I take him. Uh, I got the stolen truck, and I take him with me, and um, that's how I got discharged. Um, I went on high speed chase. It was all filled with bars. Didn't know. I ended up on the wrong side of the highway, uh, and uh, managed to get off the wrong side of the highway. I was on the far side of the wrong side, so I'm on the shoulder, and I managed to get off. I went through the, the median where there's like a ditch, and I came up and I lost control. Tire fell off, and I slammed into another car, and that's how I got discharged for aggravated assault with deadly weapon. And that's what you ultimately went uh, went away for eight years. Yeah, that's what led me to being in prison. And mind you, when I get to the county jail, the first week there, uh, detectives are coming for all kinds of things, and. It's looking real bad. So they're coming with pictures and uh, statements and accusations. And so, uh, do you want to go into all that stuff, or you want to? Um, I could talk about some of it. I mean, not that I could. I, um, 
So there was an armed robbery one time. Uh, so these dudes, they called me like, hey, man, we need to make some money. Uh, can you help us out? I already had money. I'm chilling with this girl. And uh, my, pro- my probation officer said that I, he, this was his uh, little theory. If you had a girl, you stay out of trouble. So that's what I was, uh, you know, trying to do, to mm. stay home that day. So uh, these dudes called me and like, hey, we need to make some money. Well, I had some uh, really strong weed. And uh, they pick me up. I start getting them high. So they get to the point where, like, oh, man, we're just going to go home. And I'm like, nah, you already brought me out here. So I see this dude in a a Challenger with uh, some huge rims. And um, I was like, all right, I'll see y'all later. Like, y'all want a part of this. I'm, you know, y'all go home. So I went and got that guy and pulled him out, took the car. It was a push start. I didn't know how to start it. You know, I was young. I didn't know you had to press the brake and push. So I'm over there trying to push it, have the gun holding him down on the street. And so, you know, I know I know shouldn't say it, but it's been over 10 years already. So, you know, something like that. The statues already ran through. So this was over 10 years ago. But, yeah, that was one of them. Um, he came in and I was like, uh, so-and-so, they already told us that you did it. I was like, well, they told you I did it. Then why are you here for it? But they had pictures of the car. They had pictures of uh, the victim. And, you know, so it was that. And then uh, some shootings that were happening at that time, they came in talking about they had the guns. They are showing, uh, showing me. And uh, they started making threats, uh, you know, so. And they were threatening, threatening you with, uh, with about how much time were they trying to. Oh, the, with the uh, specific crimes that they were trying to throw on me. Yeah, they were, you know, could have ended me up in prison for life. So, and so when they were telling you all this stuff and um, what was going through your head, you like, I was like, dang, it's over, you know, it's over with. So I remember that. So on one particular occasion when the detective showed up, uh, they showed a lot of pictures and I thought it was over with. You know, so I went back to my cell, I broke my hand because I punched the wall. <laughs> you know, you're never going to win. Fighting the wall. No, no. <laughs> so, yeah, that happened, and um, I just turned violent in county jail. And, uh, yeah, I just kind of went through the county phase where I talk, spoke on earlier. Um, I lasted probably like a month in the county jail before I got put in the administrative say because of uh, you know, the way I was acting. I was just acting out. So, so for the audience, uh, before this testimony, we did a uh, – a prison table talk that Jonathan was on. So that's what he was mentioning. Uh, so he talked about some stuff there. So um, I'll put a link in the description so you can check that out. Um, so, okay. So you're uh, 19, uh, yeah, 18, I'm 18, you're 18 in the County. Um, and you're go. you know, when you finally go into prison, uh, let's kind of talk about that a little bit. So, yeah, like I spoke on with the prison podcast, <clears throat> I went into um, I went into prison just with this uh, mindset of never coming home, the possibility of never coming home, you know, because a lot of things still lingered at that time. You know, it was uncertain. So when you went in there, did you go in with the same mentality also uh, that you lived in the streets with? Yeah, it was just like... You were going to hustle, you were going to do what you had to. Yeah, it was all just the same mentality, different environment. Mm. You know, um, so we spoke on being uh, nervous or anxious and, 
Yeah, you, uh, we get those feelings. I remember, uh, so the county jail is all the same story, fighting, you know, most of us spent in SEG, so there's not much there. I remember signing that day I signed in court, coming back, and i um, like, well, this is it. So I get to the point where they pick me up to go to prison, and, um, you know, we spoke on how they uh, strip you down, and, you know, you're out there just wide open, no clothes. So you go in there already kind of agitated. They send you in there. You, that's your first day they start you off. They start you off real agitated. And um, so I get to this unit called Garza West, and I don't last long there because um, it's real. It's for people who, like, don't have a lot of time. They're just passing through. Or if you do have a lot of time, you're waiting to get to a unit where you're going to spend the rest of your time. So I wasn't trying to wait there. And I remember uh, I'm already frustrated. And I got into the gambling thing, the sports. And they had they warn you in there, if you can't handle gambling, don't do it. And uh, so I got into the gambling thing. And I remember it was December of uh, 2016, I believe. And um, the Spurs were playing the Houston Rockets. It was Christmas. And... Uh, the Spurs lost. I put a lot, I, I didn't mind losing the money, but if anybody knows about sports in prison, there's a lot of bragging that goes on. So uh, get into a fight with this dude, and it happens, and then the guard comes in and uh, just makes it, it. This is Christmas. So she starts talking real bad to us and um, turns off the TVs, and, you know, it's just like they're in control, you know. So I'm real agitated. At this time, I don't have no girlfriend or no wife. And um, I have my mom, of course. She rides me, but I'm not dependent on her. So I'm living my own life in prison. So I go tell my friend, uh, my homeboy, what they, you know, quote-unquote homeboy, you know. So I go tell him. I, he sees me packing my stuff. He's like, what are you doing? I said, bro, I'm gone. I'm, a, I'm not going to stay here. He's like, what do you mean? I said, I'm get G4. So G4 means that you get put in a different custody is uh, you're in trouble. So, uh, and this was crazy not thinking back to it. So I'm packing my stuff. And he's like, well, I'm going to go with you. I was like, all right, bro, whatever. So um, I do what they call lacing up, put my boots on, tie them real tight. Um, everything's packed up, ready to go. And I get the trash can. It's a metal trash can. And I start just banging on the window with it. And um, spider web shatter the window. It, no, it doesn't shatter because it's really, really thick glass. So it's spider webs, and now you have all these guards coming in, and um, they're trying to talk me down. And this was the first time I ever experienced a, what is it called, anxiety attack. So um, that happens. I, I get, uh, they're trying to talk me down, and they're like, uh, calm down, calm down. We're going to work with you, but you need to put the trash can down, you know. I'm holding it like it's my, you know. Yeah, yeah so I'm, I've already banged this window and I shattered it. I knew what the objective was to get arrested and get sent to a different unit. So that was the only thing I was going to accept. And um, so they talked me down and they take me outside. And I don't know what this feeling was. The first time I ever experienced it. And uh, the only thing I could say was it was an anxiety attack. My hands shut and my eyes shut. My chest felt like it was being crushed. And all I could do is scream. I'm in the middle of this prison bowling alley, what they call it. And it's, uh, you know, late at night. Got all these guards video recording me. And I'm just screaming my lungs out like I've never screamed before. And uh, I think that was an uh, anxiety attack, that the first time I've ever experienced. So uh, 
I remember going to uh, the cell that night. I'm all getting choked up. <laughs> yeah, I uh, went to the cell that night, and uh, I feel accomplished. Like, yeah, I did it. <laughs> when we're gone, we're going to leave. We're going to a different uh, unit. So I knew anywhere other than this transfer unit was going to give me action to uh, what I was trying to do, which is get to the cell phones, get to the drugs, and get to the women, you know, anything that's going to help my time go faster. And um, so I get to this, I'm, I'm in this prison cell, and uh, this this sergeant, I remember coming, I'm okay. I don't want to look, oh, I'm wiping my teeth. I'm just kidding. Kill edit it out. Um, so I get to uh, a... <laughs> I get to the cell at night, and the, the sergeant comes and starts. He gives me a Bible, and I remember this. He's all tatted up everywhere, like um, you know. He, does, he looks like an inmate, but he's a, he's an officer. He's like, I don't know what's going on with you, uh, but you really need to consider the path you're about to take. You're just starting off your time. So I tell him, um, I remember saying, "Bro, I ain't never going home. This is my life." And uh, he looked at me. He looked at my paperwork. He says, "Uh." So it looks like you have a chance to go home. So if this is what you, you want to make your life to be, then this is what it's going to be. So I blow it off, and I go about it. It takes me about a month. I sit back there a month before they put me on a bus to go to a different unit. And then uh, I go to what's called uh, where they kind of it's diagnostics, what they call it. It's in Huntsville, Texas, and I stay there for a few days. And uh, here's where they're going to decide where you're going to go based on your, your behavior and your conduct, you know, your background. So I know I'm going to go somewhere. In my mind, I'm going somewhere good, you know, because they're going to have everything I want there. But it's really going to be a maximum security unit. And, um, yeah, we get there. And I remember uh, I sit there about a week. And at the end of that week, we get to this big room. And it has a huge map of Texas on it, Right. <coughs> And on this map is every uh, where all these prisons are. So you're going through this process, you, and you're in your boxers, and they're questioning you, and they're telling you, okay, you're going. They give you just two letters, initials. So everybody goes to the, the wall and looks at the initials, and you figure, okay, this is where I'm going. So uh, mine said GL, which means Gib Lewis. I'm going to Gib Lewis, Gib Lewis Union in Woodville. So everybody's like, oh, man, you're good. You're going somewhere live. Like, it's good there. What that means is there's rock and rolling, fighting's going on, the drugs are there, the phones are there. It's good. That's the term, that's the term they use. You're live. You're going somewhere good. It doesn't mean you're safe. It doesn't mean that you're going to have fun, like, be comfortable. It means that you're about to get into a real prison. Why, why, why are you in your boxers? They tend to try to, <laughs> they tend to, try to keep you, uh, you know, so when you're in these processes of moving, they want to keep you with as least clothes as you could possibly have so you're not carrying nothing with you along the way because uh, you know, just, you know, for example, about two and a half years ago, somebody escaped off of a transfer bus. So they try to keep you bare minimum. Everywhere you go, you're going to get stripped out. Okay. Um, so while you're in this place, they're... Yeah, we're all freezing in our yeah. boxers. <laughs> so For two weeks. No, no, that's just uh, when they take us into this big room. Oh, okay. I thought, like, the whole time you guys are running around in your chonies. Yeah, okay. No. <laughs> I was like, why? So, so real quick, um, what was your mom's thoughts when she uh, heard that you were going to be going to prison? Did it break her up, or was she again, um, like, when you were in juvie? Was she like, no, she saved it this time. But she had a different outlook. Yeah, so she just used to be like, uh, you know, be careful wherever you go. Uh, I know you're going to be okay. Because uh, she knows me, like uh, I'm sure y'all have learned to see, is uh, I'm great with 
communication and conversation. So no matter where I've been in, uh, before in the streets or in prison, it's always a uh, uh, my conversation gets me pretty far, you know. So yeah, she knew I was gonna be okay. She uh, she was just she used to come see me, and uh, she's like, "Well, I don't know if I can make that trip out there to Houston all the time." So I'll be like, "You know, it's okay." So okay, so then you're going to this prison that's live. So what are your thoughts when you are actually in there? When I'm on my way, I'm just excited. It's like a real excitement. I know it's gonna be because of because of the segregation that I went through. A lot of these dudes are, we're all running into each other, so they could vouch for each other. Like, okay, yeah, he, I know him. I run into him. Actually, uh, he went to one of the events. I don't know if uh, y'all will remember him. He probably won't. But actually, uh, I did a lot of time with him there at that place, and he came home and started. Uh, we still kept in contact and still to, to, still to this day. So a lot, like, I told, like I said in the prison podcast, you can't go nowhere in the state of Texas prison system where you're not going to be known. Somebody's always going to run into you and just like, oh, I re- yeah, this dude did this. And so, like, if somebody has a bad rap sheet, you can't get away from it. Mm-hmm. So when I'm on my way to this prison, it's, I'm, it's messed up to say now that I'm saying it here today, is, but I was excited to get there. But then when you're actually there experiencing it, do you still have that? Yeah, it was, even, it was even more because uh, I get there. And there, so you get there, they give you the layout, like, uh, Okay, these dudes are doing this. They got this, and they have the cell phones. And um, homeboy over here works uh, this spot. He brings all the all the food from the kitchen. So it's just a whole lot of bartering and stealing and hustling. Everything's going on. So is it because there's the uh, the system, the guards or whatever are just more lax? They just let you guys get away with more stuff. So the unit I went to, the average age was uh, eighteen to twenty one. <sighs> And we all, the max time that they had at that specific unit was 45 years. Mm. So everybody had anywhere from 10 to 45 years. And uh, you had some few people that were older, been gone for a long time. But the majority of the unit, they're coming straight out of a, uh, it's a youth offender program. So a majority of the the population there, they're coming straight out of this, uh, you know, TYC and then youth offender program going straight to that unit. Okay. Uh, So So it's like can't tell us nothing you know yeah so when you're yeah. there did you start selling drugs not right away it wasn't something that i could say like because i didn't have no money out here uh-huh. you know i didn't have the support i didn't have the the means or anything to do it but i always uh, i was gonna position myself t- to be around it until i got there so um you know i started peeping everything and seeing who had what and then just kind of work my way in there it wasn't until I got this uh, one job. In prison, we have plenty of jobs. So I got this one job where I'm waxing the floors, and um, I had access to anything I wanted at nighttime with no supervision. It's crazy to hear. But um, you could walk around the whole prison unit and nobody supervising you. And that's how I got into that, uh, the whole selling drugs thing. Because now you're moving around the whole prison, and, you know, you just kind of start bartering and you meeting people and so in the prison podcast you mentioned that you uh linked up with uh the Orejones. Did yeah was that right away or is that uh, yeah that's straight out the county i did that okay yeah that was because that's why i actually uh i ended up in administrative administrative seg with the Orejones. 
So, of course, if uh, people out there don't know what that is, it's a city gang. We get to prison, we all kind of stick together, you know, but things start getting twisted in certain places you go, extortion happens, and, you know, everything that a, a regular gang would operate, they start operating like that, which is, you know, not to give no history on it, but it was actually uh, established to avoid doing that, and it's just ended up being a gang still. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is years before me. Okay. Uh, so... <clears throat> So your whole time in there, did you uh, did you still have that same sentiment of this place is awesome? I love it here. For a while, yeah, yeah. I did. For like about three, four years on that unit, it was just like I have letters from my mom. She's saying, um, "Hey, here's my address in case you forgot." Being sarcastic, "Hey, here's my address in case you forgot. You could write me because uh, I just forget about. I just chose to forget about everything. So I come up for." Uh, parole i get denied and um so i was supposed to do this is another part of god's grace that um i was supposed to do six years straight before i saw parole this was what i signed for in bear county i signed for 12 years aggravated assault so when i get to tdc i i see parole within a year and a half 17 months so the lady tells me because uh the paperwork was done wrong I saw parole. They didn't have no finding of, uh, because the truck was uh, charged as a weapon, the state of Texas didn't acknowledge it as a real weapon. So they just, the paperwork wasn't filed right. So on a 12-year aggravated sentence, I saw parole in 17 months, and that was, you know, it's a rare, it's something rare that, you know, a lot of people, you know, hope for, you know. So I saw parole, and I was like, nah, this ain't real. So I get to the parole office, and they're like, yeah, you're here for parole, uh, Obviously, you're not going to make it. Tell me straight up. <laughs> Obviously, you're not going to make it, bro. You've uh, been in a lot of trouble already. So, you know, you want to sign here saying that we... So, I signed the paper saying that I saw them. Forget about it. Get a letter in the mail saying that I got denied parole and just went about my day. And, um, yeah, so I could have been home. Realistically, I could have been home about five years ago. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, what do you think would have happened if, if that happened? Do you think you would have went back into the life? Oh, yeah, because I used to plan it and lay back and daydream. Like, when I get home, I'm just... Now you... Uh, I don't know if Casey, uh, Jesse spoke in. You kind of articulate these thoughts like, now I could do it better. Mm-hmm. You know? Uh, like you're learning in there? Yeah, you learning. start meeting more people. Yeah. Like, uh, you meet the plug from Houston. You know, so now I got this dude I'm real cool with. I could drive to Houston, go pick up something. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just... That's his mentality, and uh, I think I told you and Liz, I used to have this mentality, like, I'd rather live one day like uh, Chapo, which is a cartel, mm-hmm. high cartel member, than 20 years in prison. So I would trade my life. At that moment, I would, tr- I would have traded that life 20 years in prison for just one day of living reckless, fun, money, and everything. Mm-hmm. That was the mindset. So looking back on things, um, since you found God in prison, I mean, it's probably a good thing you didn't make parole because maybe you would have died in the streets. Yeah, it was always God's plan um, not to come home like, that way. Yeah. And because, yeah, it wouldn't have been good. I didn't have no plans of coming back to San Antonio. I only came back uh, because of God and through my wife, but I wasn't going to come back to San Antonio. So you have options to where uh, you can be let out. Yeah, you they just tell them, out. like, I don't have nowhere to go, and they're going to send you to a different city mm-hmm. or wherever they can place you. But, yeah, while I'm in prison, I get to a, so I get to the point where I'm already known at this unit. I've been there about a year or two, and um, this is when all the drugs and money starts coming in. 
Um, and these are, I'm talking real heavyweight drugs, pounds of weed and pounds and four or five ounces of meth are coming in at a time. That's crazy. Um, quarter pounds of, of every, whatever you could think of. Um, six or seven cell phones at a time are coming in. Like these, this is a real prison where people are making their actual livings, earning more than people earning a year out here. It's real in there. And, um, so I, I got into the thing, sell, uh, selling dope and cell phones. I would keep two cell phones. I always, always had a backup cell phone and, um, sending money home to my sister. She jacked me for like a few thousand. I sent her. I'm crying in prison, like, why you take this money from me? I'm, you know, I'm in prison. How could you do this to me? So this is my sister that was here last, yesterday. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, she took money from me, and um, I tried uh, funneling money through another girl, and that didn't work out. It would never work. It would always fall apart. You know, I could get so ahead, have everything, and it fall apart. I had to start overs. And I always was able to start overs. You know, uh, so I went, I got... I went through a G5, which is a close custody SAG. That was the first time I went. Had a blast in there. It was even because. Um, wait, say that blast. all again. What? what? <laughs> a G5? What is yeah, that? So G5 is uh, is uh, the highest uh, security close custody, which means there's a shower in your cell. Your food comes through a door. Um, commissary comes through your door. You come out maybe for an hour. Or maybe now you might come out three hours in a week for a rec yard. Most of the time you're in the cell. But this is where all the mafia and the syndicates were at. So there was, that's where everything was coming from. And that was the first time I went. It was like nothing, no lesson to learn because it's, you know, it's even better back here. you enjoyed it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's cheaper because uh, the way it works. Uh, so SAG is separate from, you got to... It's separate. You got to get transported over there by officer. So everything's cheaper over there because once it gets to the other side, they raise the price. It's just like the border. Uh-huh. And um, so, yeah, it was, it was a blast where everybody's having fun back there. I actually go to school with a guy that was uh, back there with me. And we don't know each other, but we were on the same wing because the way that it works, you, you don't ever really know the person you're talking to. You just know his voice because you're talking through the door. So this person actually was right there and we never uh-huh. saw each other. Oh, my yeah. goodness. That's how it works. Did you recognize his voice or just through stories? No, just through stories. We started oh, talking. Okay. And I was like, where were you, bro? He was like, oh, I was on Gibb Lewis. And I was like, oh, I was on Gibb Lewis. What year? We started talking. We were like, oh, dang, we were right there at the same time. You remember this and that? And it's just like a small yeah. world. Oh, my goodness. He says the same thing. But he's a worldly, he's still a worldly person. Yeah. He said the same. He, you could uh, ask these dudes, you know, we convince ourselves that we're having fun yeah and um it's not it's it, now that i have the life that i have now nothing compares to what i have now yeah. the spreads the <laughs> <laughs> the the cell phones nothing could compare to what god has given me now yeah your freedom yeah no it's it's they're they're masking their emotions yeah, you mean? Trying yeah. To, trying to make light of what what situation they're in. So at this point, you had mentioned earlier that uh, that was the, the first experience with anxiety. So when was it that you got your second or third? Or uh, No, that, so that was about the only time I ever experienced anxiety. When I, oh, okay. when I spoke on how uh, what I lost my mind was in the county jail. You know, that goes way back. That was dark. Now I would sleep for like three days straight without waking up just to maybe use the restroom. So when you do finally wake up, you're so weak, it doesn't. You just want to lay back down. Mm. 
And then um, started having these suicide contemplation on killing myself. And so I didn't ever want to really just kill myself. I wanted to be kind of suicide by cop type of thing. I was just lay there all day planning it out, trying to figure out how to get these dudes to kill me. But yeah, that was back in the county. Once I got into the prison system, everything is more wide open. Like, it's free, free roaming. and So you preferred the prison than the county? Yeah, I'm sure most people would. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to do time, yeah, you, nobody wants to be in the county. Um, okay, so you're in prison, then you're living the life. Yeah, <laughs> living the life. <laughs> and you're a true player. <laughs> so uh, I speak on, so like I said, uh, total calendar time of my life, I got about 10 years of my life. I'm 29 years old, so that means 10 years of that time has been spent incarcerated at one point or another. That's a third of your life. A third yeah. of your life. Is Dang. So when I, it's easier for me to speak on, you know, still to this day, I find myself thinking back because just nine months, two days ago, I was in prison and, you know, three years ago, I was really in prison. So I still find myself thinking back like, dang, I I have more memories in prison than I do of actually being outside. outside. Well, I can remember more. It's most of your adult life you've been in, in locked up. Yeah, so... Um, I got into the whole, uh, like I said, the penitentiary player type of thing. Tried. There's so many women there. Is At that specific unit, it was crazy. Real women we're talking about. Yeah, we're talking about uh, <laughs> real women. I was, I was going to like, but I was like, no. No, yeah, not, real. not women with balls like Jesse would say. <laughs> <laughs> no, I could Did he say that in the prison one? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so... Yeah, no balls. I can verify. Um, <laughs> so you're saying there's lots of women because it's a, a mixed unit. There's women serving, or because of the guards, or what do you mean? Because they um, they they broadcast these prison guard uh, jobs like it's a, a career to do. They give incentives to them. They give them five thousand dollars sign-ons. They'll get five thousand dollars added onto their first check. The sign-on bonus. So you get these kids coming straight out of high school and um they're in small towns i was in woolville texas just the next town over is jasper texas so you if you know anything about jasper texas this is all just small little towns and um yeah so they come in and they think like they're gonna make a career or a name for themselves but at the end of the day they're still women and there's so many men in there with just been sitting there reading so many books that they're what I like to say are mouthpiece, and you know anybody who's done time knows what that term is. It means that like your message, your game is just so swift that you sweep these women off their feet. Mm-hmm. They're getting attention that they wouldn't mm-hmm. get out here. Yeah, you know, and it's sad to say because a lot of them ain't what you know women should they look like. You know, they're not the best looking women. You get a select few, but. Um, yeah, they go into prison, they fall in love with us in prison because they get brainwashed. And um, you spend any amount of time with a woman alone, you know, feelings start to yeah, of yeah. generate. Yeah. So, yeah, I got into a, a relationship in prison and um, was with a, with a female. Uh, and um, she was African-American. So, you know, it was different. <laughs> <laughs> How so, Jonathan? No, no, no. <laughs> It's different, you know. I'm used to my Mexican women, <laughs> so you know that it was a. Oh, so uh, if you're wondering why, it's because I was at the part of Texas I was at. It was all black people and African Americans. So 
you know, Mexicans and white people were kind of the minorities there. Mm. So, yeah, I got into this relationship with her, and um, the job that I have, I get to spend a lot of time with her. And, of course, things happen. You're still waxing floors? Yeah, I'm waxing floors. Yeah. (laughs) So I'm a a floor technician. Oh, is that the real term? (laughs) That's the term, yeah. (laughs) I'm a floor technician. So, yeah, I get into the whole uh, fornicating and fornication thing. So my mind's really, like, messed up at this point. I feel like I'm in love with her. And, um, you know, it's just that's all I could think about is her and so I believe God used those feelings to attract me to him. And, um, you know. How so? Wait, how so? Well, because of the love. I started feeling like I loved her. And I would snap back to reality and look at this lady like, uh, I really don't think I love her. You know, it's just kind of lost in the fornication. Oh, okay. And um, just the contact and the feeling of a woman, you know, just it kind of threw me off. And, um, do you think, do you, okay, cause, cause you said that you were a player, right? When you were not in no, jail, I didn't but, to yeah. well, but it, I don't know what the, whatever, but you, whatever you were saying in high school, <laughs> my wife's here. Oh. So. <laughs> no, but, but, but well, you saying this makes me go because you were like, no, I really wasn't into them outside. So with this lady, were you feeling like, Oh, this might be a real relationship. Cause you were just using the oh, other ones yeah, when you were out. Of, so I truly believe that. Um, the right moment or the right time I could get her pregnant and come home to her, you know. So um, I started thinking like I was gonna marry her, you know. So oh, okay. good. my mind was warped. Um, she sees that I'm in there making money, and so she would bring stuff in. And I told her, "Look, if we stick together as a team, I could buy a house within a year before I come home, and I will do it together. I'll come home to you. I will have a house, and we'll just be set. You know, we'll start from there." Because there's a real possibility of buying your own house before you come home. It's a real thing. Are you serious? Yeah. So it all takes, you know, it's just a, a partnership with you. Build a friendship with these officers. Some uh, A lot of times they do come out pregnant. And, um, yeah, it's just a partnership. They just, they're in it for the money. They're getting an average state pay. I don't know. I can't, you know, definitely say how much they get paid. But they're not getting paid a lot compared to what these men are offering them in there. Mm. So if you want to talk about that, like these people are getting offered like a thousand dollars to bring in something the size of a phone. So it's just, that's how they get consumed in there. Yeah. Mm. Okay. So, uh, so then elaborate, uh, you talked a little bit about the podcast on the uh, last one. That's why she's a little lost. Yes. Sorry. How this relationship led you to, to God and kind of your Bible. So, so yeah. Um, I had started, uh, like I said, I started catching feelings for this girl. I thought I was. And um, I was partying because uh, I was working night shifts. So I would, you know, do a line of meth every now and then and um, smoke, get high. Well, one night I'm waiting for her to come on shift. And um, I started listening to the radio. And that, I can remember that I'm trying to catch a station. I couldn't listen to, you know, we listen to basic radio. And uh, for some reason, Air One comes in. I just listen to it, just, you know. And uh, God really just hit me in the heart with just a particular song. And Do you remember that song? I can't remember the song. Mm. So it was a particular song. I remember just it hitting me, I getting the chills and, you know, the whole emotional thing. 
And then for some reason, I'm bored and just sat down and started reading the Bible. And because um, you do a lot of reading in prison. Mm-hmm. And I was saying to Daniel uh, that I had got into the whole philosophy and uh, laws of attraction. It's all witchcraft. This is how I was using this lady. Um, I didn't mention it in the podcast, but me and um, so before I started feeling I was catching feelings, we we're using her. I had sat down. We? And, we? Yeah, like. Me and other little friends of mine, he had a girlfriend, and, you know, we're all in this this together trying to get drugs in. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, so uh, me and a friend of mine, he's from Beaumont. I sat down and wrote this love letter, like, put all, everything I had into it. And um, we started, so I didn't know what we were doing at this time, but it was really some witchcraft, you know. We started meditating and praying over this letter, not praying to God, of course, just right. kind of just chanting over, like, it's, Words, yeah. told him, here, hold it in your pocket for the day. And I hold, we held onto the letter for about a week before I gave it to her. And um, it worked. The letter, it was all just manipulation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, I used to read all these books, and um, I was into all this uh, foreign knowledge and how to better yourself, self-help books and everything. So at this point that you're doing all this, are you uh – is it because you are searching for something at this point? Are you um, as far as like, yeah, I want to be like a superhuman, you know, like this philosophy stuff that states that you're one with the universe, one with the mind. You can do whatever you want, you know. So that's what I was seeking. You know, I was uh, on a search for like a soul search, you know, sort of like self improvement. Wanted to be because okay, this is how it started. I, I started. Um, I saw parole two more uh, another time, right? Mm-hmm. I said, "Dang, like I could have been home, you know." So then I started working on my mind, like, if I'm gonna come home, I'm gonna get to it, make as much money as I could before anything happens, and at least I could say that I did it and left something behind. So uh, after seeing this parole, I, I felt like I got a chance at life. I could come home. I could have been home already twice. I had the opportunity to come home twice. That's how I got into this reading. These this particular knowledge and books and everything because i realized that i have one chance to come home and this is my last chance even now as i speak here today as a christian and living for god this is my last chance mm-hmm. and i soaked that in and i realized this is really your last chance this is it so like i said i didn't have the christian mindset i said this is my last chance i'm get home i'm gonna uh what they say, stack up, run up a lot of money while I'm in prison so I can leave with it and go from there. Mm-hmm. So um, that night I started reading the Bible, got all crying and crying. I don't know why I'm crying. I uh, went through the, this is all night. This is from like uh, 9 o'clock at night till 6 in the morning, just straight reading. So I get through the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and I get through some of the gospel I spoke on earlier in the podcast that speaks on how Jesus told his disciples, you could do all these things and many more. So that's what hit me. It's like, man, I, should, I, I believe I could do a lot. So it kind of boasts your uh, pride up because you're in a prison with 2,000 men and you got a girlfriend. You know, you, it kind of boosts mm-hmm. your ego. Mm-hmm. And um, so I was like, shoot, I could do this. I could do it out there. I could come home and do everything I'm doing here, but on a bigger scale. Then I read what Jesus said, like, you could do all this and more. Everything I'm doing, you could do even greater. 
So that's what got my attention. And then I told him how I told in the prison podcast book on how I got into the book Acts. And that's how I knew that was my plan that God had put on my life. So during this time, did you cry out to God? Did you start talking to um, him? So, yeah, from that day, um, that's when it started. That's when I started praying. Uh, so did you do kind of a sinner's prayer by yourself to God? No, uh, I didn't do that until my second time, G5, uh, when I was already in a relationship with my wife now. They went back there, and I knew uh, so I, you know, start fresh. Yeah, so I uh, start ministering to this girl that I thought I was in lo- uh, had feelings for this this prison guard, and she's like, "You're crazy! You're one of those uh, Mormon people and Jehovah Witnesses," and she's making fun of me. I was like, "No, like for real, we could do it the right way." But still, I had this mentality like, "I'm gonna serve God and still hustle on the side." Mm-hmm. So that's when I was telling her. Um, Let's do it. Uh, we can make 20000 I had broke it down to her. I said, we can make 20000 in less than three months. We do it the right way, slowly. I said, uh, and then we'll put something down on a little house. And it just had this fantasy, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, she started like, you're crazy. You're, you're crazy. So I started to pull back on her and just like, well, whatever, start dissing her. And that's when I got in contact with Naomi through a cell phone. And so you made the first contact? Yeah, I made the first contact. <laughs> okay, so she would have reached out to me if it wasn't for me reaching out to her. Okay, so uh, obviously you know, so you're married to Naomi now, but let's let's jump back. So Naomi was you had mentioned earlier was uh, a friend of your mom's, yeah, from that church. So you were a teenager when you knew her, right? Yeah, I was about thirteen or fourteen years old. My mom had invited her to church and. Um, it was just like this angel that walked into my life. <laughs> this aura. She had She's this bright light aura. <laughs> yeah. yeah. She's shaking her head. <laughs> yeah, it was just like this angel that walked into my life. And I was like, honestly, she doesn't believe me. But at that point, I was like, yeah, she's going to be mine one day. Really? I honestly, really? did say that. And she doesn't believe me. It is okay. So you, so you <laughs> liked it then? shaking her head. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it was like a fatal attraction type of thing, you know. <laughs> but then, of course, I went, uh, everything in between happened, and, you know, I kind of disappeared from the scene, and she could attest to that. I never was around. You know, she never saw me. Yeah. And so we'll ask her what her thoughts were of you were when she was younger, too. But She uh, didn't even notice me. I was like. I was going to say, did she even notice you? I'm like, you probably, you were, yeah. She was you already were just, a grown woman. Yeah. yeah I was a yeah, kid. You were the little kid. Uh, okay, so what made you want to call her? Uh, well, over the years, I would always ask about her. Like, uh, oh, how's Naomi? How's she doing? And um, so I had heard about her divorce and uh, heard about everything that she had went through. Not in detail. So one day I asked, like, I asked my sister, what's up with Naomi? How's she doing? And uh, she was like, oh, she's fine. I was like, she's single? She's like, yeah. I was like, give her my number. <laughs> <laughs> Tell her call me now. I'm in prison on a cell phone, and uh, so yeah, I, I don't know how it happened. She agreed, and I was like, "What's up?" What's up? <laughs> <laughs> so when you started talking to her, uh, she was saved at this point, correct? Yeah, she was saved so, already. So then, you had no idea. Did you know she was? Saved? Oh yeah, she's been. Uh, she's always uh, been. Okay, so when you were younger, she was saved. Yeah. Okay, so do you think that that might have been part of an attraction? Um, I like to believe, man, that it was all God 
once you hear her testimony, you line up ours together at that moment in, in time, there's nothing else but God. So then she she was a big uh, player, motivator, helper in your faith in prison? Yeah, because so at this time when I'm with this officer, I start praying for my wife. This is before Naomi. So I had already been introduced to these so-called laws of attraction. So I knew that the Bible states, you know, that we could come to him in prayer and supplication that he's going to answer our needs and everything. So I had already understood, like, oh, sure, I can start praying for my wife then, you know. So I'm already praying for her. And um, something that I actually did when I was young, too. I was already praying on a wife when I was young. So I start praying and praying, like, well, if this is, a, if this, uh, you know, this girl that I'm messing with, my wife didn't bring her, you know, and prepare me for her. That was my that was my main prayers. Prepare me for this woman that you have for me in any way that you have. So I'm working out all day, like, <laughs> you know. <laughs> So, you're, think, you're thinking physical. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking physical. God's, God's saying no spiritual, Jonathan. Yeah. Spiritual. So I'm working out all day, look all fit and everything. Uh, I know it doesn't look like it now, but at one point <laughs> I was like really fit. And um, so yeah, I reach out to her, and you know we start messaging like teenagers, but she doesn't catch on right away that I'm on a like I'm on a legal cell phone, so she just expects me to call her on her timing, and it's just like. Dude, the cops are outside. I can't put you on the phone right now. Yeah, it went like that. And um, did she ever go visit you? Yeah, she did. Uh, but I was already G. I was already in Seg when she went to go see me. So yeah, I'm talking to her and I'm bringing money in, but not like the way because I had just came. I wasn't too long out of. Uh, I went to lockup for something, and uh, so I'm trying to get everything rolling again. I got my cell phone. That uh, was a mandatory. You always had a cell phone. And um, so, yeah, I'm, t- I'm telling her, like, I got these plans coming. I'm going to make a lot of money. Let's do it. I want to do it for you. In my mind, I was like, look, let me prove to you that I could be a providing man. Mm. You don't got to do nothing for me. Just hold my money and don't screw me over. Well, it never really got to that point because God had other plans. But she did see the mo- she did see the potential of what I was doing in there, and uh, I'm talking to her on the phone. I got this girl outside my door, like I know what you're doing. You're in there with your girlfriend, right? Like, so it became drama in my life in prison. Oh, this was the girl you were seeing yeah. in prison. Oh, okay. I had told her about her. I said I'm gonna come home to. Her. She didn't know yet, but I was already claiming her as my wife. Like, instantly, I was like, yeah, I found somebody that I'm gonna marry, and. Um, coming home to so she laughs it off and she noticed that i stopped talking to her and i'll be in my cell and i i used to come out and hang out with her now i'm in the cell talking to uh naomi mm-hmm. so she'll come to the door and make uh comments and try to get her to hear her voice and it was just dumb stuff yeah yeah she was never uh she knew you were on a cell phone right like she never tried to like yeah she never turned me in Okay, so your your relationship continues throughout uh, the rest of your stay. And then, uh, uh, I mean, you guys get married in prison. Yeah, we get right? married in prison. <laughs> nobody believes us. Like, no, I'm not talking about y'all. Yeah. But, like, people don't believe things like that could happen in prison. People don't believe their cell phones and their sex and, you know, not homo sex, real sex, you yeah. know. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> so, but you know all this is really going on in prison so when we tell people our testimony like yeah we got married in prison they're like yeah i mean i think people's idea of prison is 
Yeah, it's they don't realize something it. from it's the movies or something. They basically it's it's its own enclave, mm. it's its own society. It's you know there's there's everything out here basically in there, just a different capacity. You know what I mean, um, <clears throat> okay, so talk about uh, leading up to that. Like uh, you know, you guys just talked a lot. You got more serious. Um, she obviously felt the same for you after a while, and then like, uh, no, not. not not after, not right away. So it actually, we got slammed with a, a we got slammed with a, a, how would you say, like a trial, mm-hmm. a test of our, you know, instantly. So uh, like I said, I was involved in selling everything, selling drugs and, you know, everything. So they have already been trying to get me, you know, same thing like out here, they're going to try to catch you with something. So um, we had said, well, okay, I'm telling her all my plans of the dreams, visions, everything I have that God has already given me. At this point, I'm already writing stuff down. This is what I want to do. So I tell her everything. I said, look, you're going to marry me. I'm not asking her. I'm telling her. I said, look, you're going to marry me. I'm going to come home. Uh, eventually, I'm going to start my own business. We're going to live for God, and we're going to be just, you know, in love. And she's like, yeah, whatever. And she doesn't believe me. So it's like uh, we're in the dating stage. We're texting mm-hmm. back and forth. And so I'm trying to serve God within my spirit by reading the Bible, but I'm still selling drugs. Mm. So she's one day says, well, let's fast and see where God has in mind for our relationship. Right. So it was a Friday evening. I used to hide my cell phone during the week and I'll pull it out on Fridays. I had a hole in my wall. So, uh, it was a Friday evening. She said, let's fast. I'm like, okay, yeah, let's fast and pray. Don't call me all weekend. I was like, okay, whatever. So I stay on the phone. And um, Saturday morning, they run down, they run into my cell, and um, they didn't find my cell phone. It was all grace because if I would have got found with a cell phone, I would still be in prison so right now. Because it give you more time when you get caught with cell phones. So uh, they didn't find my cell phone. I had it in my shoe. It was crazy, like how the scenario played out. And um, they found the hole in my wall. There's a so what we used to do is to bust, it's a brick wall. You bust a hole in the wall and get, it's called bippy. I don't know what they call it out here. It's a cleaning powder for chrome. So I would get that, get a whole bunch of soap, crush it down, turn it into a brick, press it into the wall, and get this white bippy and make a paste. And it looked like nothing's there. It looked, you know, I'm a certified carpenter, you know. <laughs> no, I'm a, not a carpenter. He what do they call it? What's a, what, yeah, what's the professional name? Waxing floors. No, and no well, he said his professional name for waxing. Oh, floor floor, technician. Floor technician, but now what is he named? He's a stucco. A stucco guy. Yeah, yeah. He's a stucco. He can do stucco. Watch. So I've actually <laughs> had myself on the wall where they come in with dogs and everything, nothing, and they will never find it. So this particular day, I get lazy because it's the weekend, and um, I have the hole open. And so I used to have to make this fresh paste every time I do it. So all this stuff's on the floor. It looks all messy. The hole's open. So they know that something came out of there. They didn't find it. So they uh, throw me in lockup, and um, so the whole time I'm praying, please, God, let me out, because I got the cell phone. I was able to pass the cell phone on to somebody before I, they took me into the actual lockup uh, center, the holding state, uh, holding cell. And um, so I'm praying, like, Lord, please let me out. Let me fix this with Naomi before you send me to G5. I know I'm going to G5, yeah. which is SAG. So just three days later, out of nowhere, um, so apparently, over the past few weeks before I got this case, rules had changed where if they didn't have a paper case written, they couldn't hold you longer than three days in the holding cell. 
So on the third day, they're like, hey, pack your stuff. You're moving. You're going so-and-so. So I'm thinking I'm going across to the high security and SAG. And they pull me back onto a regular building. I'm shook. Everybody's looking at me like I'm a snitch because they, everybody knows who I am because mm-hmm. I work at nighttime, move everything around. So everybody's giving me these crazy looks like, oh, this dude's snitching. He just got, they know I got arrested for something. So I blow, I don't give, uh, I don't care. I get into a cell. And um, while I'm in lockup, I have uh, my homeboys bring me a whole bunch of uh, dope, you know, drugs. It was synthetic marijuana. And I'm using this because I think I'm going to SAG already, so I'm selling it for all my soap, all my stamps, you know, getting it prepared to go over there. So um, I get sent back to the population, and uh, I land in the cell, and I tell the dude, I'll give you all this if you go across the union and pick up my cell phone. He's like, cool, man, let's, uh, whatever, bro, I'll go get it right now. So he goes, he picks up the cell phone, he comes back, and I call Naomi. And uh, I tell her, like, man, they got me, I got arrested, I'm going to go, I'm going to be gone for a whole year. Like, well, what does that mean? I was like, well, I can't use the phone. <laughs> you know, there's no more phone calls. It's all letters. You know, that's it. That's the only thing. That's the only way you could hear from me is from a letter. So she's, like, freaking out, you know. Mm-hmm. God doesn't want us to be together. We fasted and prayed. I'm like, no, you fasted and prayed. I didn't do nothing. I got locked up. So um, we talk about it, and she's like, okay, well, I'll see what I can do. I already know what that means. Like, we'll see how it goes. Mm-hmm. You know, you ain't got to tell me no to know what that means. So I'm like, okay, cool. So I was able to, the next day I'm going to court, and I know I'm going to get sent to SAG. So I'm telling her goodbye, and I was like, okay, uh, I love you. Oh, she doesn't say nothing, you know. <laughs> it's, like, it's like I'm coming home to you, dude, just watch. So uh, I was able to sell the cell phone right then and there for, like, dirt cheap. I didn't care. I sold the cell phone, cell phone and um, next day I went to court and got G5, and that was it. We didn't talk to each other for six months straight. It was all letters. And during that time, uh, it was like a test from God on my behalf because it was like, well, what are you going to do? You can sit back here. There's all these drugs back here, you know, cell phones. But I had already decided, like, this is it. I'm going to go into SAG and I'm going to live clean. I'm not going to mess with nothing. And when I get out, that's it, God. I'm going to live for you. That's it. I'm talking about going back into population. Yeah, yeah. So I'm writing her all these love letters and poems and drawing for her. And I get this letter one day. She's like, well, God says that I already have a husband. <laughs> I'm thinking like, well, who is he? It's me. Because <laughs> so, I'm praying. I'm praying every day. I'm praying for our marriage. And she doesn't know it. Every day I'm literally down on my knees and my face praying. Lord, if you bring me home, this is it right here. You know, I know we can't bargain with God. Mm-hmm. But I'm telling you, I surrender. Like, give me a life out here. Give me a real life, you know. So, uh, yeah, I get that letter. She's like, yeah, um, God's telling me that I already have a husband. I got to live like I have a husband. And all this stuff, I'm laughing at her on the letter. Okay, go run away. See if you could. See how far you could get. So uh, she's like, so this is not goodbye, but this is uh, see you later. (laughs) In other words, she's breaking breaking up with me on a letter. Yeah, yeah. Right? So... uh, I blow it off. I continue to do what I'm doing. I'm studying, I'm fasting, I'm praying. I'm still writing her. Like, oh, okay, uh, I'll be your friend then, you know. So she's continued writing me back and forth. Like, the letters never stopped. Mm-hmm, it was mm-hmm. from, uh, okay, uh, uh, this is not goodbye. to so see you later. And then the next letter comes. And then, um, yeah, so I was supposed to do a whole year back there. 
But uh, I'm not praying for my... I'm not praying that I get out any sooner than this year because it was already set in stone. The last time I did a whole year, mm-hmm. the six-month stuff was not expected. So, uh, yeah, I'm praying every day for her and me, like marriage, children, a church that we're going to land in. I'm putting my whole future together in prayer. And uh, 180 days go by, and they come and knock on my door. COVID hit while I'm in G5, so it gets even more crazy. Mm. I get a free phone call and I call and she doesn't accept it because they're charging her like $18 or something crazy. <laughs> so then again, I call and she finally answers. I'm like, what's up? <laughs> <laughs> How's it going? Uh, so I just didn't know what to say. It was a quick two minute phone call. Yeah. I think I asked her like, is it really as bad out there as they say it is? And she's like, yeah, it's bad. So uh, whatever, I go back to that. Man, that was like hope. I heard her voice. So I go back to the cell, I'm praying, I'm praying, I'm praying for the same things. For 180 days, I pray for the same things. And um, I get a knock on the door, and they're like, hey, pack your stuff up, uh, you're moving. I'm like, what, I'm moving? You usually don't move when you're in SAG. Yeah. So they take me to this place. I sit back there for like three or four days, and I'm writing her, and like, hey, they're, uh, you know, I don't know what happened. I think I got my G4 which means, like, uh, it's a, a step up from SAG. You know, you have a little bit more privileges. So, like, I think I'm getting my G4. I might be able to call you. And um, so then they, they're like, hey, uh, pack your stuff up again. You're going to your housing where you're going to be living. So I go, and then we're walking, and then I'm, uh, I'm not saying nothing because I know I'm walking into population. So I get to my cell. I'm like, hey, uh, y'all are G2s, which means population. And they're like, yeah. I was like, oh, cool. I guess... You know, I didn't have to do the whole year, and I didn't have to go to G4. I went straight from SAG into population in 180 days, which is really unheard of. Yeah. Do you know why? This is God. Right, like, do you know their reason why? So I get to this maximum union, they, uh, another maximum union, they're like, bro, that's a hole in your wall. Like, you know what I mean? We don't care about that stuff. Okay. So it was, every unit has their own way of punishing their people. It's like little mayors. And so, uh, yeah, that's when I get in contact with her, get into uh, uh, population, and I call her on the phone, and she's still with this, like, um, yeah, we're friends, and I'm like, blow me a kiss. <laughs> you know what I mean? So she's like, no, I'm not going to blow Anything, Naomi, anything. <laughs> I'm talking on the phone with her. Not a cell phone, but this time yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm in, using the regular phones. So I'm telling her, try to get anything, like, Blow me a kiss, or and she's like, "No, you're not my boyfriend. You're not nothing to me. We're friends." I was like, "All right." So we just kept it like that, and then um, so one day I'm praying. I'm like, "God, I start. You know, you ever get those feelings? Like, am I really hearing from God? Is he? Mm-hmm. Am I, you know, hearing the wrong things? Because I'm in my spirit. In other ways, He's revealing that yes, you're coming home to this woman. So then I start feeling like my faith's weak yeah, you're and questioning everything, questioning like, God, is this really you? So I put it to the test. I give her an ultimatum. I said, look, this is what's going to be. Like, if you ain't with it, I'm gone. Like, this is it. I won't ever call you again. I said, I'll call you back one more time, though, get your answer, you know. She's shaking her head. So yeah. she has a different version of this, I guess. <laughs> no, it's, that's how it happens. She, she's just upset because I pushed oh. her to the test, give her an ultimatum. <laughs> so, yeah, I give her the ultimatum. Um, like, look, I'm... Uh, this is what I want. I want you to be my wife. Uh, you know, I want to live for God with you and everything. I'll call you back later on tonight. I hung up. 
And um, so the whole time, it's a stressful. These are stressful four or five hours in between. I'm just praying, like, dang. So I called her back, and she's like, okay, okay. Uh, I, I'll give in, and, you know, we'll work it out. We'll figure it out. Like, yeah, I already know. <laughs> I know, because God told me so. <laughs> well, we went from there, man. You know, it's been a, it's been a long journey. Um, and then how far after until you guys got married? So it's about the maybe going into the second and a half year we got married uh, just from talking, from the initial contact. And yeah. That was, and that was two years ago? Yeah, that was uh, well, we got married 2020. We started talking. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so then, <clears throat> so then twenty-one, the, yeah, something like that. So the end of your uh, your prison life, you uh, you make parole. I didn't make the first parole, so I, I saw parole four times total. So then I come out, and uh, the whole time I'm telling her, just because I'm living for God, and just because of this, and just because that doesn't mean I'm gonna make parole. And sure enough, it came around. We saw parole. She's all excited. I'm all like, no, nah, don't be excited. Mm. Or we get denied. And, uh, Are you guys already married at this time? No, uh, I don't believe so. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't believe we're married. So, uh, like, now I got denied. Okay, yeah, because I wasn't married because I was already talking about, like, I can't go live with you. I'm going to go live with my mom first. I was going to go stay somewhere. I was going to compromise. And um, she's like, well, we'll see how it goes. And then, uh, yeah, we get denied another year. I had to do another year before I come home. So, yeah, in between that time, it was a struggle because uh, I started feeling like, dang, all these wicked thoughts started coming into mind. Like, remember what you did, bro? You're not coming home. Mm. Remember all the stuff that you did. You're not going to make it home. So I used to just get all in my head. Mind battles. And we try breaking up with her and telling her, this is before we got married, mm-hmm. and telling her, like, hey, uh, don't call. I'm not going to call you anymore. Turn the phone off and. Just forget about me, you know, because I felt guilty. Like, I don't I'm never going to be out. Yeah, I don't deserve to drag her along, you know, and just have her expecting this and it doesn't come. So, but once you made the decision, as you know, relationship with her, relationship with God, you weren't selling drugs in prison. No. Yeah, you I stopped. Had, yeah. Well, because of the whole G5 thing, that was my sign. Like, you're not going to. So, my idea, my idea was that I was going to make all the same same fantasy mm-hmm, fairy tale mm-hmm, that I was mm-hmm. giving to the officer, I was giving to her. Like, I'm going to make all this money. We're yeah, gonna yeah, be yeah, good. yeah, But, yeah, after that, it was like, okay, that's not going to work. It was actually given to me in scripture. Like, you know, so once I surrendered, God revealed to me, like, now it's time to build from the ground up. Mm-hmm. The right way. The right way. Okay, so when you do um, make parole, are you guys pretty excited? Yeah, it's, it's super exciting. But then they tell, so we look in. She has an interview with the parole board, the voters. She talks to them, and based off what they told her, I was like, yeah, I'm going to make parole. It's good. The very next day, we checked and said approved for parole. But I had to do six more months. So it was just, like, bittersweet. Mm-hmm. I'm coming home, and in between those six months, it was like I got into a fight. Um, it was yeah, just, so between those six months, there's still a chance. I could lose my could, parole. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of it was scary, tough. scary situation to live through. I got into a fight. The dude beat me up. I had a black guy. I thought I was going to lose my parole. And I'm all crying on the phone. I just got into a fight. I got a black guy. It's over with. <laughs> so, but God got me through that. So, was, was that uh, an extra hard time of faith for you? I mean, because 
it could be taken away. I'm sure the devil is probably throwing stuff at the you whole, left and right. The whole yeah, time. Yeah. The whole time I've been in prison up until, uh, <clears throat> was it Frank Romero, the one that came, I did the podcast with? Yeah. He gave me a word and uh, spoke to me after service and really God uh, allowed me to lift a lot off my chest to him. But up until that point, I still have this this burden from the past, just worried, like, man, don't forget everything you've done. You know, I've actually had a particular person tell me that. It's like, don't forget everything you've done. I know everything you've done. So all these voices are in my head, and these six months are just like, up until the day that it was my release day. So it happened that um, my release day comes. I'm already in free world clothes. I'm getting ready, and they mess up my paperwork. So I'm sitting there for hours, and I'm thinking, like, great, I'm not coming out. I keep asking them, like, am I coming home or what? And they're like, yeah, you're coming home. It's just we messed up your paperwork. I'm the last one to leave. I'm uh, two hours late after everybody already left. So up until the day that I stepped out, it was a mental battle. And then when you get out, uh, you know, you're excited and get to see your wife. Um, you walk into a family because she has three kids of her own. Um, so total 180 from the life that you've been living for. From one day to the day. next. So how was how was it adjusting to normal life again after prison? And um, Because I had so much contact with the, the free world stuff as far as the cell phones and the experience. Um, I, could, I personally feel like it wasn't like I uh, came out like a weirdo, you know, you have some people who do a lot of time and they come out kind of weird. Um, I always bring this one up, like, uh, so she pointed out one time we're having dinner, I'm standing up with my back against the wall eating, and she's like, what are you doing? So I guess little stuff like that Mm -hmm. I was showing. Um, I put ranch on everything I eat. That's part of prison, (laughs) you know, so stuff like that. You smash up all your food, make a spread at home. <laughs> yeah, I did one time. She was upset with me. I, I was at work and she, I did it, but I had already been praying, bro. Like for, like I said, literally 180 days straight, I prayed for the same thing, for God to prepare me for my wife, God to make me the man that I need to be for these these children, for her. So, 180 days straight, I literally prayed the same prayer every day. Mm-hmm. Amongst others. Right, 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 yeah. So that helped me when I came home because I knew right away, uh-huh. 15 days out, I had, I got a job. I got the flu and then I got a job. So I got the flu right when I got out and then I got the job. And, um, yeah, within 60 days, I was right there serving. I mean, not serving, but at church. Um, she was there. She was filling in for me when I wasn't there, and I was watching it on TV. Well, I think uh, just to go off of what you just mentioned now, I think – um, I think that's what a lot of people lack, right, when they get out of prison is they didn't have that relationship with God or a prayer life, right, where they can contend like you did. For something. Um, <clears throat> because you always see, you know, somebody who comes out of that life into some a new environment, a new way of life, it just will wax them out, right? Like they can't handle it. Mm-hmm. It's too much for them. And then they just fall and then they're back in prison or they're back into that life. You know what I mean? That's what, you know, the... On the prison podcast, uh, you know, we mentioned some stats of recidivism, of uh, a study, you know, of 60, over 60% of people released from prison go back to prison within three years, and 82% in, within 10 years, they go back to prison. So <clears throat> I think it's a, a testament to your faith, right? Because you did kind of 
seeing you since you came out, <clears throat> it seems like you're handling everything pretty well. You know what I mean? Family life. I mean, that's a you walked into a teenage Instant boy, family. a teenage boy, and uh, two young girls. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, and you seem like you're handling things pretty well. Where yeah. I think a lot of people who didn't have uh, God's back uh, backing on it, you know what I mean, could have just like wigged out and just took off. I give credit to uh, the accountability that I allowed the pastor to have on me. So in the beginning, um, as y'all may have seen, like uh, I'll miss one service because I, you know, I hadn't been home in so long. I got the monitor off, so I went to the movies and then went to the river. But I'm like, I'm justifying not being in service, saying that well, I'm not sinning. So, but then I started to see other problems within my marriage, like arguments and stuff. So I give credit to. Uh, Pastor Luis for sitting down and telling me like, hey, bro, uh, you know, keep God the center because once he's not the center, then everything else is going to fall apart. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I'm glad that um, he was able early on. I said uh, I had already told myself I'm going to sit under this pastor and I'm going to grow here. This is where God wants me. So, yeah, um, I want I want you to tell how you guys ended up in church, because I think that also helps understand your testimony of why i'm going to stay here and grow so uh, my wife was already in church she's been in church for years and um they found out i was coming home so it was like well who is he you know she had told them she told them when she got she told them when she was dating that i'm dating somebody in prison they just blew it off then she told them hey i got married to this guy in prison and they kind of like what why'd you do that for her? like this is what they told her like, do you even know him? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This is what the pastor and the leadership people are telling her at the church. And uh, so then it comes time. They blow it off thinking that it's not real. And then it comes time, like, hey, he's coming home. And uh, matter of fact, he'll be home next week. All these red flags start coming up. Well, we don't want him to do this. We don't want him around the children. So me personally, that that hurt my feelings because I dealt with so many people in prison that uh, in my past life, in the gang life and everything, we uh, take that real serious yes yes yeah with the children you know we you don't touch children yeah we handle our own in there as far as somebody comes through from san antonio who has that type of charges they get dealt with pretty bad mm -hmm. so um that offended me to like not to where it shook my faith but it hurt my feelings right right so i'm telling them i'm telling naomi tell them i'll take all my paperwork while i was in prison and they were still like well we just uh you know we don't want him around the children he can't so Naomi uh, was like, well, what about my girls? He, can he pick them up from class? They're like, no, we don't want him to go pick them up from class. So I was like, what the heck? So I was like, fine, that's cool. This is before I came home. So mm -hmm. I, then I started praying, okay, Lord, I'm coming home. I got to get really quick. And uh, I meet Pastor Luis at the parole, uh, parole office because I had to do orientation. Everybody who comes out of prison has to go to orientation. And uh, his message was real firm. It was like... Of course, I wasn't looking for handouts because I have this work, you know, work mentality and mm -hmm. it's going to make it happen. So he's just like real straightforward. We're not giving handouts. We're looking for real men who are trying to do something for God. That was his message. And uh, he's like, what got me was because I always consider myself that one, you know, like, you know, that one that would make it, that one that beats the odds and I can make it happen. Mm -hmm. So he says, like, uh, this is what he said. He said, I'm looking for that one person and uh, it's probably only one person in here. You know, it was like, who's going to take that stand for God? So, of course, I wasn't going to be like, that's me. 
you know. <laughs> right, right, right. And you all look like a sucker <laughs> <laughs> to your pastor, you know. That's me. And just, but inside, you were like, that's going to be me. Inside, right there, I made the decision. That's me. Um, and I said, uh, you know, I waited for him to pass out his card, his number. And I knew, like, well, I didn't know for sure, but I was like, that's me, man. I know I could do that. You know, six months, he mm-hmm. gives a, you know, he throws it out there. Give six months of your life to God and all that. Well, I know I could do that. I just did it all this time. And I did six, six months, months already. Six months is nothing, yeah. 180 days, yeah. So, um, yeah, I get home and I sit in my garage and I make me a sandwich. And I'm sitting there and looking at the card. Naomi's at work. I'm looking at the card and uh, just like, well, what? I mean, should I call him? Should I text him? So then um, I look at the back, and the address is six minutes away from my house. So I was like, I call him. I don't even text him. Hey, bro, I just left the pro office. And I think within the week, y'all were at my house, all of y'all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> we were. We, we, yeah. we went to go have dinner and meet you and meet Naomi and the kids. And, yeah. And from there. Uh, so I think that was one of, uh, one of the things that um, I guess impressed us all of your faithfulness of wanting to work this out right is because uh you were watching the live streams while you were on house arrest uh naomi started coming to stuff you know i mean so you guys kind of showed this this eagerness to to want to get to know us get to know us get to lock in you guys seem genuine and like you guys were serious you know what i mean from the jump so i was like oh these guys definitely know what they want you know what i mean yeah there's no wishy-washiness uh, with these guys so i used to have this uh like, I hate to say it like this, like this uh, terminal mindset, like cancer patient mindset, terminal, like yeah. death is at the door. And um, I use that same mindset serving Christ here today is like, I I can't waver. I can't compromise. Um, in the beginning, I tried leaving Naomi. And then I just instantly like realized like, I can't leave her because then I'm just going to just fall apart and end up dead or something. You know, it's like I'm stuck with her now, you know, (laughs) in a good way. But, yeah, I use that same mindset like uh, death is at the door. You know, it's it's a real possibility that I could open that door to death by compromising everything. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I keep that mindset. Yep, You're alive and what are you going to do with it? Yep. So that was another thing I uh, prayed, like, Lord, uh, I don't want to just be, you know, I want to be in the field. I want to be in action. I want to be used. Mm-hmm. So Casey uh, one time told me, he's like, bro, God didn't bring you home to start a pressure washing business. You got to do something for God. I was like, I'm going to go sign the ministry papers. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh, one of the things I want to kind of touch on a little bit is um, your your vision that you had in prison for uh, what you felt God kind of put on your heart to do and stuff. And I remember, you know, one of the times we met for lunch that you showed me your, your journal, your notebooks mm-hmm. of all the ideas and everything you know, that you had dreamed up. And I think it's pretty powerful on, you know, what God is doing and where the path of your life is going. And one of the things that uh, Jonathan has brought uh to the church as a ministry is being a barber is um, <clears throat> is we do these community events. We did a, our first one was in January and then we did one for our baby church, Alex, um, 
in June, and then we just had one yesterday. And uh, there, it's a powerful ministry tool. You know I mean, I've told you before, like, I mean, that's a, everybody needs a haircut, you know, your vision for this on the cuts for change. And, uh, you know, you <clears throat> planning this out and thinking about it, you know, before you even knew about this church, right? We kind of talked about it uh, um, a little while ago where uh, on the river, we were talking about how, you know, God was putting all this stuff into you and then to see you fall into into uh, the lap of pastor, basically. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Where pastor has this ministry with parolees and, uh, and it was kind of everything, you know, <clears throat> giving you the opportunity to be able to do this mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and to build your, your vision as well. You know what I mean? It's like, like you said, it's just, you can see God putting the pieces together of the puzzle. You know what I mean? Yeah. So one thing that I've realized with God is that, um, you know, we don't match his pace. He matches ours. He's only, we will only go as far and as fast as we can go with God that we allow ourselves to, because he's willing to take us far and as quick as we can get there, but it's up to us. Mm-hmm. So sitting in prison in SAG was like, uh, I started studying, got real into the theology, but I didn't become a prison theologist. You know, I seen that, I seen the, the dangers of becoming a prison theologist, these dudes get bitter. So I just got to keep me humble. And I would keep what God gave to me to myself as far as his knowledge and stuff. I would share his love, but he gave me, I just told Jesse yesterday, it was like a, a writing spirit. You know, the stuff I put together, I showed you the blueprint, the little baby blueprints and the speeches and, you know, uh, just the potential of everything that's already happening you know, God gave to me in a prison cell, and um, it wasn't me because uh, my vocabulary, I had to go back and start reading a dictionary to start writing these speeches out. I had to take a speech class in prison. So uh, the Cuts for Change came about one night. I had been fasting, and I had this dream that I was standing on a hill, and there was hundreds of people walking past me. So I'm telling, I'm trying to tell them, y'all are going the wrong way, Right. Um, I've already been back there. There's nothing over there. But these people look like they don't they're just mindless walking. Right. So I'm standing on the hill trying to get them to go this way. So when I woke up, I prayed about it. And I'm really thinking and I start writing. So then it started coming about. Like, what can I do to get these people to see that there's no hope back there? And it was like, use what you already have. Like at this moment, I could cut I, when I cut hair. You're sitting in my chair for anywhere from 20 to 30 minutes. And whether you like it or not, I could talk to you about God for this whole time period. And if you want to walk away with half a haircut, you could. But nine times out of ten, they're going to sit there. Mm-hmm. And what I've noticed when it comes to cutting hair, people sit down and open up. Mm-hmm. And I see it all the time at barber school. They'll sit down and start telling me all their problems. So it's something with this tool that God is using and... um so I came up with the Cuts for Change in prison, uh, the name. I came home and got a trademark, not trademark, got it registered with the county. And I told God, All right, it's yours. It's not mine. This is your ministry. This is your tool. You use it how you want. So I get off the monitor, and within two weeks, pastors, we're having an outreach event. Mm-hmm. You know, I got off uh, December uh, 27th off the monitor, and our this outreach. January 21st. So, yeah, almost a month later, this, well, within two weeks, he said, let's do it. And then it took the planning. 
So that's just how quick God can move in, in your life when you're obedient and surrender everything. So with the cuts for change, um, yeah, just like I can use this tool as because a, a lot of times these barbers are looked at as role models. You know, they have the cool shoes, they dress nice. You know, it looks like they got a lot of money because they got all these tips and ones and they got this big stack of money. So, you you know, it's a tool, it's an outlet to be used for the younger generation, the older generation, because I, I get the chance to minister to old men as well. Just yesterday I prayed for a man that said he hasn't walked in three months. So you get this tool, and um, it's just an outlet. It's a unique outlet, you know, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So just yesterday I told Daniel, so I had the opportunity to be interviewed by Daniel yesterday at our event as the founder of Cuss for Change. And to me, it still sounds weird because it does, you know, it sounds like something big. But this interview that I had yesterday was written almost two and a half years ago in a prison cell that God had gave me, you know. So that's where it started. And where it's going, we don't know, but, mm -hmm. you know, it's going somewhere good. Yeah, well, the sky's the limit with Jesus, right? Yeah. Well, things are possible so <clears throat> i mean that's i think what's uh one of the cool things about your story is just kind of just seeing how that falls falls into place and and like you said uh try not to get sidetracked right like you, you know you're always hitting me up with new ideas of this what about this what uh, about that my wife <laughs> doesn't like it so i you know now that i'm saying it on camera um you know of course i me and my wife uh, were supposed to talk about everything but having a, a godly man or godly men that I could go to uh, with these ideas and with these plans is a, it's a blessing, you know, because I consider you all my close friends and family and I could run to Pastor Lehem like, going through this uh, in my marriage with my children. I've already experienced some things that I took to him. And with my finances, I come to you, you know, as a financial advisor and uh, knowing that you're going to give me the best advice that you would want for yourself. So that in itself is a blessing. Yeah, I mean it's it's good to have a support system of other people that you can rely on for sure. That's the the great thing about you know the church environment because it's mm -hmm. people that you can actually trust and yep. take sound advice from. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, I think yeah, like like Casey said, and you kind of mentioned it too that you know you just keep focus on God and keep everything you do centered on God. So your business, the cuts for change, your marriage then, you know, God will excel in all those areas for you. You know what I mean? Because it's, it's ultimately, it's not about you. You know what I mean? Like even your business, it's, there's an underlining reason for what you're wanting to do, but God will bless you in that. Yes. And make you, you know, give you prosperity in that because it's a greater tool that you can use it for. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So now it's, I think that's the key is just, you got to keep God centered. You know what I mean? Um, so <clears throat> before, I think before we're, uh, we close it out, um, I guess two things. One, is there anything that you want to touch on that we didn't hit? And uh, second, uh, just kind of words of uh, advice. It's kind of what we always ask for somebody. Oh, man. Um, well, I feel comfortable with everything we touched on. Um, of course, there's plenty more that I could have spoke on and um, – Really, it just takes one-on-one -on -one to really just get deeper into my life. And, you know, of course, I share it with y'all. And when the time comes with other people, they'll be able to experience it too. But, um, yeah, I just, the only advice I can give is just what pastor has given me is let God consume everything in your life. Mm -hmm. 
Let him be the center and just imagine him like this huge magnet that is just going to attract all kinds of good in your life. And, you know, the bad will be weeded out, be taken care of. Uh, it's never too much. It's not going to be like it's never going to be anything I can't handle. You know, sometimes I get a little weary with the finances being a, a young business owner, entrepreneur, trying to do it on my own. But that's the key. I'm not doing it on my own. Mm-hmm. I got a family like y'all. I got God first, you know. So overall, um, coming out of prison, um, nine months, two days, I am counting down to that year mark. It's been a great blessing. I've experienced fun, true joy. Uh, you know, I've gotten good fellowship with each and every one of y'all. Um, advice, anything that could possibly given, I've received here at this church. Not this, just this church, this family, you know, so it's just a blessing to be here. Well, one of the things that kind of blew me away the other day is when you mentioned that uh, that you hadn't had a, was it a birthday present? Yeah. Since so you were I, a little kid yeah. or something? It was like, what? So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, I just like get down on the record that Daniel beat my wife to giving me a birthday <laughs> gift. You're starting a fight. <laughs> So yeah, antagonize. No, but I just think it's you know you're living you're living a uh, uh, a normal life like you're experiencing what it is to to be like to go eat at a nice restaurant. To, yes. You know the simple things in life that we all take for granted. You know what I mean? Yeah, right. these yes. are blessings. Like uh, like you said, the restaurants that day y'all uh, invited us to uh, Rosales was life changing for me. Like <laughs> that day changed my life forever oh. now you just can't give me any type of meat because i know <laughs> what good meat is You're like it's not picante i don't want it <laughs> you can't just give me anything no more i don't want no ham i don't want no ham sandwiches and i want roast beef or i want picante you know just... but looking back on it right it's like the stuff that you missed out right and you know your a third of your life was prison the other you know your youth was just nonsense you know what i mean and so now it's like wow this is what normal life is like this yeah. is obviously let's talk on i guess let's talk, touch on a little bit uh you have a baby on the way yes, boy. I, yeah i do have a baby boy on the way something that we prayed about so going into you know being a father of a little baby boy you're responsible for a little human being now you know what yeah. i mean like they're reliant on you to teach them to right. grow to be uh you know a man of god to be you know a decent human being so that's a, you know you got to do your part now so have you thought about, okay, um, do you have responsibility, I guess? Yeah, it's something I definitely pray about because, uh, like, I don't know the, I feel like the manly things are like, uh, I learned how to change a water pump with Alberto, you know, stuff like that. I don't know how to do things like that. So Even I, grilling, I remember you telling him, talking about uh, yeah, Daniel, grilling I, come out. I learned how to uh, cook a steak through Daniel. Uh, so these things that the world calls manly, which I consider they are, um, I'm concerned about because it's like, dang, I don't know how to teach my son how to change oil, but the time will come when I will be able to because, again, it goes back to the family that I've been given through y'all. It's like uh, I am going to learn these things, and God's going to help me through it because you know, I'm already, like, telling pastor, it says drop your first son, or your firstborn son off at the church, and that's where he's going. Like, So early on, I'm going to just teach him the things of God and just – you know, everything else will fall in place. Yes, yes. I mean, it's a good position where you're at with a newborn because you start them from day one. I get to train them. Yeah. <laughs> from yeah. <laughs> train them to be a, a ninja. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> biblical assassin. There you go. Yeah. 
All right. Well, <clears throat> well, thank you for joining us, man. Yes. You have a, a powerful testimony. Um, I think, you know, you got a good story and uh, what God's going to do in your life and <clears throat> in your cuts for change and also in just your uh, discipleship of, you know, being a, a pioneering pastor someday or the goals that God has for you. I think you can, you're going to achieve some great stuff. You know what I mean? Yes. Thank you. Yeah. I can't wait to see. I can't wait to see. And then we can five years from now look back and be like, yes, do you gonna, remember? Yeah. It's going to be great to look back on. Um, yeah. Yesterday they asked me, uh, how old you are? I said, 45. That's just because I feel like everything I've been through in life already is just, I'm surprised so I still got some 20s in me. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Thank you, though. No, man, I enjoy our conversations with each other. You know, you're, you know, you're knowledgeable, you're researched. Yeah, you know I mean, so I think, you know, God's going to move in your guys' lives for sure. Mm-hmm. So uh, yes. we're excited to be a part of it, be part of it. So thank you for joining us. Yes. Um, thank you guys for joining us. Uh, yes. Watch us next time. Bye. Well, I was going to say like, subscribe, share, share. Yeah, do all share, that. Yeah. yeah, do all that. <laughs> all right, bye. Thank you so much for joining us. We want to give a shout out to the Choosing Hope Foundation. Go to the website, the, uh, go to the website choosinghopefoundation.org. See what they're doing over there, man. Wrapped around prison ministries, just doing big things out there. Check it out if you want to donate or if you just want to see or if you just want to just check it out and see what can happen. Hey, just see it. See what can happen. Check out lifespeakspodcast.com and be up on the info about our podcast. And thank you so much for watching. If you want to donate, you have an option on there. Next, the Potter's House GRA.com with uh, our church, Universal uh, Church in Universal City, Greater Randolph area, 2025 Universal City Boulevard. Come and check us out. See how God's moving. Let's check out the website. Once again, it's thepottershousegra.com. And man, just see how God is just moving over there. And it is awesome. Like, subscribe to our podcast, ring the bell so you can get all the notifications. And thank you so much for joining us.